You're listening to episode 34 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the stories of Captain Adam, Rocket Red, and Nort. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I hope you like Justice League International, because this is the second of three all-JLI episodes of this show. My first guest, here to talk about Captain Adam, is one of the hosts of Silver and Gold Podcast, dedicated to Captain Adam and Booster Gold. It's FKA Jason. How are you doing, Jay? I'm doing fantastic. Count, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for being on the show. I'm going to tell our listeners, I was sweating for a little bit about this, because I was aware of your Captain Adam fan blog for a while, and I emailed you about being on this episode. This was, I think, about six months ago from when we are recording, and yeah. I didn't hear back from you for a long time. I was like, crap, I'm going to have to get Diablo Frank on the show again. Oh, what a but, horror. Yeah, but fortunately, we were finally able to connect, uh, and I'm thrilled to have you. Yeah, I was MIA on uh, Twitter for a long time, and uh, when I decided to get back on when we were starting our show, I had this, this uh, message from you sitting there, and I'm like, ah, man, that's been there for months. Of course I want to do this. I love Captain Adam. Yeah, I couldn't ask for a better guest. Uh, you certainly the closest thing to an expert. You've got your own blog, your own podcast about it. But folks, you know, the Fire & Water Network recently started a new show called Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Wait, wait, they did? I haven't heard about this. <laughs> You haven't been aware? No, no. Who who does that show? That is the Irredeemable Shag. Uh, uh, okay, and, enough said. And some other fools, <laughs> I guess, who, who agree to be on that show with him. I guess they'd have to be. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a really popular show. People seem to love that era of the league. And the demand was so great that the Irredeemable Shag couldn't wait any longer. But maybe one podcast isn't enough to sate everybody's hunger for these characters. Maybe you need more, and that's how you stumbled upon this show. Well, if this is your first time hearing the Secret Origins podcast, allow me to put it in a little bit of context. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And I think everyone would agree that what's been missing from the series so far is more stories about a talking space dog with a green lantern ring. But that's a story for later this episode. Right now, as I mentioned, Jay and I are talking about Captain Adam. How or when did you discover this character? 
I discovered this character uh, with the very first issue. I really wasn't into comics so much as a kid. I had a few like Marvel uh, Doctor Who comics that were basically just reprints from Doctor Who magazine. And I had a friend who uh, was really heavily into uh, superhero comics. Uh, my friend Roy, who co-hosts the podcast with me, um, was a huge Firestorm fan. Firestorm fan. Um, <laughs> and uh, one day I walked down to the corner store with him to buy his comics, and I picked up an issue of Hex. It was actually Hex number 18, <laughs> uh, which was the final issue of Hex. And uh, looking at it, I couldn't tell what the heck was going on. I couldn't wrap my head around the artwork in that one. Uh, it took me many years to uh, develop an appreciation for um, – oh, now the artist's name es- escapes me um, – Giffen. Yeah. Giffen? Yeah, I believe he was the artist. I just couldn't wrap my head around it, so I went back with him uh, like probably the next day or a few days after and said, I'm going to get something. I can tell what's going on. There's this uh, Captain Adam number one on the uh, spinner rack. So I grabbed that and just have been in love with the character ever since. He was my first superhero. I don't know what it is, something about the displaced in time element, the silver skin, the uh, the crazy flared up eyes when he gets angry, you know, shooting energy out of his hands. I just love the guy. And uh, I've been hooked since uh, that day in 1988. All right, first things first, there's more than one Firestorm fan? Surprisingly, yes, there uh, are at least two that I know of. The uh, irrescapable Shag and uh, my friend Roy Charlemagne Cleary. All right, all right, good to hear. I like Firestorm too, but you know I wouldn't call myself a you know a super fan. Yeah, I was thinking about this, and I realized that my first exposure to Captain Adam was in, of all things, Extreme Justice. Extreme! Yikes! Yeah, that '90s team. I bought issues zero and one of that series when they first came off, uh, mostly for Blue Beetle, but. I instantly liked Captain Adam. I liked his look. I thought the silver kind of chromium edge it fit. It, he was like Silver Surfer with hair. And a mullet, I think, yeah, back exactly. then. Of course, and of course, being in the 90s, you know, like, you know, long, grungy hair, that was cool. I thought, yeah, I thought he just had a great look. Unfortunately, I did not like that series, and I didn't continue reading the book. So he kind of went away until probably the next place I saw him was in the Justice League Unlimited animated series. Uh. And in that, he was much more of a hardline military foil for Superman, at least in the one episode that I remember. And they actually went against each other. It was kind of interesting as that sort of government stooge in the sense of what he was in the episode, Um, you know, protecting the the state secrets and going against the other heroes. I thought it was an interesting dynamic, so I thought that was kind of cool. But, you know, just because of that, he, he was never really on my radar until I read this issue. And as part of my research for, you know, doing the, the Secret Origins podcast, Comixology has been slowly loading up his, uh, his ongoing series from the 80s. And I got the first five issues of that, started reading them, and instantly loved it. I mean, I am, uh, once this whole show is done and I can read for enjoyment again, I'm going to dive back into that series. Because I really like those first couple issues. I like what Carrie Bates and um, uh, Pat Broderick, was that? Yes, it was yeah, Pat, Pat Broderick. Broderick. I love what they were doing with the character. And the way, I mean, we're going to talk about it in a little bit, but the way they borrowed some of his old origin and repurposed it for the new, the new post-crisis timeline, very cool stuff. So I thought it was genius the way they worked that in. Yeah, yeah, and we will definitely talk about that. Actually, we can use that as a little bit of a segue. Let's get to the character's publication history. 
Uh, as always, if I leave something out, feel free to jump in, feel free to correct me. Captain Adam, the creation of writer Joe Gill and artist Steve Ditko, who some of you might have heard of, first appeared in Space Adventures issue 33, published by Charlton Comics. The issue had a March 1960 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World, it came out on January 1st, the first day of the 1960s. That seems relevant for some reason. Throughout 1960 and 61, he appeared in the next nine issues of Space Adventures, sometimes starring in two or even three stories per issue, then dropped out of publication for four years. In late 1965, Charlton's Strange Suspense Stories, which had already gone through several name changes, was rebranded Captain Adam with issue 78. He starred in that series, naturally, until the series was cancelled with issue 89 in 1967. After a seven-year gap, Captain Adam returned in the first issue of Charlton Bullseye. However, issue two of that series would be his last appearance in the 70s. He appeared in one more Charlton comic, issue seven of a second volume of Charlton Bullseye, published in 1982. When that series ended, Charlton Comics folded, and Captain Adam and the other action heroes were acquired by DC Comics. Captain Adam's first appearance at DC was in Crisis on Infinite Earths, issue six, he showed up in several more issues of that series, as well as issue 13 of New Teen Titans and issue 90 of DC Comics Presents. After the crisis, Captain Adam's history, his real name, and his appearance were all overhauled for a brand new series debuting in March of 1987. The Captain Adam series would run for 57 issues, finally ending in 1991. During this same period, Captain Adam joined Justice League International and would stay with various incarnations of the team in the late 80s and 90s, including Justice League Europe and Justice League America. But we can certainly all agree that he reached his zenith as the leader of Extreme Justice. Extreme! Absolutely. In more recent years, Captain Adam starred with some of his former teammates in the Brightest Day era series Justice League Generation Lost, and when the New 52 began in 2011, a new Captain Adam series began that retooled the character again, this time making him a shameless copy of Dr. Manhattan, a character who, it should be noted, was originally based on Captain Adam. Follow that logic. Jay, I know the character has made numerous guest appearances and team-ups that I didn't mention, but was there any major thing that I left out of his history? There is one correction I have for you. Okay. Technically, that uh, issue of Crisis was not his first appearance at DC Comics. It was um, Who's Who, the Definitive Directory of the DC Universe, Volume 4. That was the very first appearance in DC Comics of Captain Adam, which predated that issue of Crisis by about three months. Oh, okay. I'm not used to being corrected, so I'm going to hang up on you. Okay. See you later. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, I didn't realize that then. That, yeah, it's uh, just a minor sh- quibble thing. No, though. but that's that's interesting because they would have already basically previewed the characters in that uh, in Who's Who before they actually introduced them. They did that a couple times. Yes. Yeah. And also uh, he showed up in uh, the History of the DC Universe number 2, which was post-crisis. But it was before his relaunch, so the drawing of him is the old uh, Bronze Age Captain Adam. But the, the blue torso and the red pants? That's the one, yes. <laughs> and the, uh, but the description of the character is the modern age silver skin Captain Adam that we're familiar with. So there was some kind of a transition going on there. They had his backstory, but they didn't have his, uh, the way he'd look yet or something. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. So they must have been developing him at the time and yes. have included that, but they didn't have the, the visual look. They might not have hired the artist or, or the – I mean, 
It is a it is a very strange nature the relationship between Captain Adam and Doctor Manhattan from the Watchmen series. It is that, it is strange that he's now sort of based on the character that was based on him. Right. <laughs> it's and it seems like more took Captain Adam in this very weird direction that was certainly popular as with all of the other things that he did in the Watchmen. So DC has tried to make their in continuity character a little bit more like the out-of-continuity Dr. Manhattan. It's interesting. I Most of the time, I like the changes that they've made, and I like what they've done. So, For the most part, I do too. I like, uh, I mean, I like the Silver Age Captain Adam, and I liked Dr. Manhattan, but they both had the same problem, and that is that there's like nothing they can't do. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to throw anybody at them that's going to be any sort of a challenge. I prefer the modern age Captain Adam, the the one that we're talking about. Yeah, and it, in fact, it goes back to what I brought up earlier with that episode of Justice League Unlimited. In thinking about this guy's extreme power levels, I, I tend to be pretty bored by the the heroes who are just straight up agents of the military and kind of buy into the same hardline philosophies of that. I, I like a little bit of contrast with the character, but it was interesting seeing him and Superman at odds because I think with some creative writing, you could see them. I mean, they're two extreme powerhouses. Yes. And you could put them at odds. And of course, if they're on opposite sides of a philosophical debate or a moral debate, it would be interesting to see those two go head to head, you know, full out. Right. But at the same time, that's, that is not the preferred version of Captain America that I want. And we can. Captain who? Sorry, Captain Adam. <laughs> you know, I bet I do that several times as I'm talking about this. Yeah, it happens. It's a, it just slips off the tongue. Captain America is such a, a more popular character. Right. And well, with the new trailer that dropped recently, I've got that character on the brain anyway. The Spider-Man trailer. <laughs> That's what it was. We talked a little bit about it. Uh, Captain Adam has gone through a couple of notable sort of visual costume changes. You mentioned the Silver Age one, notable for being mostly goldish yellow with some red accents. The Bronze Age revision, which had kind of silverish arms, a blue torso, and red pants. And then the post-crisis version that we're going to be talking about, almost like a complete silver body shell, like Silver Surfer, but with hair, with red gloves, and a red sort of atomic structure emblem on his chest. Do you have a preferred version? Do you have a preferred Captain Adam look? Definitely the um, the version of Captain Adam that uh, we're talking about today, the silver skin with mm. the emblem and the – I don't like the, the boots and the gloves because they are painted on. I mean clearly in this first issue, they, they show him like they're etching that into his skin. So he's not really wearing gloves and boots. Mm-hmm. There is another – like a, a later version, I think the one that showed up in the uh, Generation Lost series. Um, I think that's the right one, where he actually is wearing gauntlets, he's wearing gloves. Hmm. And that is actually my favorite version of the character, but it's just a variation of this Captain Adam, which is my favorite. Um, have you ever seen the uh, – did you read uh, Multiversity? The only issue of Multiversity I've read so far was the Thunderworld one with Captain Marvel. The the one with the Charlton character, as I think it was uh, Pax Americana. Yeah. The Captain Adam of that uh, series, talk about being influenced by Dr. Manhattan. He looks 
like Dr. Manhattan. He's blue-skinned. He's got an emblem on his forehead. That was pretty weird. <laughs> but uh, no, this is my favorite Captain Adam. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to read that. I think Ange from the Supergirl blog uh, highly recommended that issue of Multiversity. He said that was one of the best he'd ever read. It's the only one I read, but uh, <laughs> it's pretty good, yeah. I got to say, I th- this the one that we're talking about is my favorite, the post-crisis one with the silver skin bodysuit and everything. I like the red gloves. I like that as a slight contrast just to kind of break it up. It further distinguishes him from a character like Silver Surfer or Dr. Manhattan or something. I'd like that. I don't know why the gloves and boots are different colors. And actually, I would be fine if he didn't have different colored like boots or something, if, if his feet were silver too. But I don't know why the gloves and the emblem are red and the boots are blue. I believe I could be mistaken, but I believe that is another nod to the um, like the Bronze Age mm-hmm. Captain Adam with the with the blue, red, and, and uh, silver yeah. torso, and you know he is an officer of the U.S. Of- Air Force, so that is a a sort of nationalist. It's a variation of red, white, and blue, so it kind of gives him the patriotic color scheme. Yeah, that's true. All right, anything else in the character's publication history before we move on? Uh. No, he was a, he was an important character in the Kingdom Come uh, series. He died in the first few pages, and that, that set events into mm-hmm. motion. But, you know, no, that's nothing else to add, really. All right. Folks, we are going to take a short promo break, but we will be back in a minute with the origin of Captain Adam. Booster? Hey, bro. Gah! Bats! Booster! Together! Wow. Well, this is great. This is just awesome. You never said you and Booster were friends. (laughs) It never came up. A consummate professional like you, friends with a dilettante like Booster? You're both my friends, okay? You're more of a work friend, and Booster is more of a fun friend. What's more fun than fighting crime? Ooh, he's got you there. Hi, this is FKA Jason's son again. I just wanted to take another minute of your time to tell you about his podcast, Silver and Gold. He and his buddy Roy Charlemagne Clary celebrate the DC Comics characters Booster Gold and Captain Adam, issue by issue, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, the real reason you want to listen to the Silver and Gold is their Throwback Thursday episodes, because I'm the star of those shows. Dad and I review the Silver Age Captain Adam stories published by Charlton Comics in the 1960s. You can find the Silver and Gold podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow Dad's Splitting Adam's blog at CaptainAdamBlog.com. We all know the real reason you'll be tuning in is to hear me criticize, uh, I mean, celebrate the Silver Age Captain Adam in our Throwback Thursday episodes. I can't believe Dad roped me into this. Searching for silver and gold If you're alone When you grow old You'll never find comfort in silver and gold I look good in the glass pack I look good in me I look good in metallic silk Wrapped around blackout tees I skirt along the horizon I get how my 
Secret Origins issue 34 did not have a cover date, but the on-sale date according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics was September 20th, 1988. The book cost $1.50 for 48 pages. Like last issue 33, this cover was penciled by Jerry Ordway with Ty Templeton inking. It's the second part of a triptych, this time showing Captain Adam, Rocket Red, and Nort flying out of the headquarters of the Justice League International. What do you think of the cover, Jay? I really dig it uh, for the most part. I mean, it's nothing spectacular. There's there's no action or anything. They're just flying out of the embassy. But I love the way that uh, Captain Adam is depicted here with the red eyes uh, and the, the yellow aura around him. I wish that the artwork inside was more like the artwork outside. <laughs> I think that I really like Jerry Ordway and Ty Templeton's uh, take on this character. Alan Weiss and Rubenstein, not so much. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. I think on the last episode, I was a little bit more harsh on the cover, and I, I hate to say anything really negative against Jerry Ordway. And I, I feel like I kind of need to take this whole set of cover as a three-piece when you look at them. And the characters themselves look so good, look so dynamic. Like you said, I, I totally agree. Their version of Captain Adam looks awesome. I want to read Captain Adam drawn by Ordway and Templeton more often. Absolutely. But, and this was pointed out, like, they look like color forms laid over a flat background. The headquarters is kind of bland. And on the bottom of this cover, you've just got these, like, white stripes, like, sort of streaking where the other characters are flying off on the other comics. Um, yes. I don't know why you have that white streak trailing behind Nort. If he's flying, it should probably be, like, energy from the green ring. Yeah, that would make more sense. Uh, I like the idea of this cover, and I... Each individual one is okay. I think it's better as a three-piece. I still wish it was a little bit more action-oriented, but I know that's hard to do when you just got to spotlight a few people for the Secret Origins. Yeah. Um, this series had cool covers, decent covers, and bad covers. I mean, that's not saying anything, but I, th I think the cover process tended to be kind of late in the game when it came to this book. Yeah. But... Not bad. I, I'm not knocking it. I definitely think Captain Adam looks awesome. He do, he really stands out as being dynamic and cool on this cover. Definitely. And he's front and center, as he should be. As he should be. I agree. So, All right. Are you ready to tell our listeners the origin, at least as far as it is told in this story, of Captain Adam? Absolutely. I do uh, have, right off the bat, one complaint about the, uh, the title page of this one. They said that uh, they have it listed as Captain Adam's created by... Pat Masuli, Joe Gill, and Steve Ditko. I, this is the only time I've ever seen Pat Masuli credited as one of the creators of the character. He was the executive editor of Charlton Comics at the time, but I've only ever seen it attributed to Steve Ditko and Joe Gill, and usually Ditko first uh, yeah. in that order. So just a little thing that I noticed that kind of is weird. Uh, but like I said, a case could be made, I'm sure. The story is titled Yesterday's Once More, written by Carrie Bates and Greg Weissman. Pencils by Alan Weiss, inks by Joe Rubenstein. Colors Greg Thiexen, letters Helen Visek, and editor Mark Wade, with uh, Dick Giorgano, of course, being executive editor. The story uh, opens in a hotel in Las Vegas. A group of people have gathered in a conference room to discuss Captain Adam. They're calling themselves Friends of the Captain and appear to be a support group for people who have interacted with Captain Adam in some way. They're a fan club of superhero groupies. Uh, they're discussing their thoughts on Captain Adam's classic costume when the youngest among them, Teresa Delgado, calls the meeting to order. 
Teresa, our regular Captain Adams, will know is part of the Air Force's Captain Adams Project PR team. Teresa asks uh, General Datko, an aging soldier, to share his story. His name being Datko was not lost on me, and I had to wonder if his first name was Stove. Uh, <laughs> Datko holds up a screwdriver and says his Captain Adams story is probably the oldest one, as it is his origin story. He tells the story, sort of ripped from the pages of Space Adventures number 33, of the uh, young Air Force man trapped in an Atlas rocket after dropping a screwdriver inside minutes before the launch. The fact that the airman got stuck in the rocket seconds before launch always seemed a bit hokey to me, but in this telling of the origin, it seems a bit more believable. The screwdriver bounces further into the rocket, and he scrambles in deeper to recover it, becoming horribly stuck. He thought the ground control knew he was still inside and wouldn't launch, but as in the original Gil Ditko story, the ground crew realizes he's still inside when it's too late and the rocket launches. Of course, the rocket detonates in the upper atmosphere, and the airman is vaporized. Later, while glumly sitting in the dark, Stove Dadko is uh, contacted by the airman who was able to survive the blast and return to Earth. Maybe it was something in the mix of the atomic radiation and the cosmic rays, or maybe it was some unknown X factor that will never be found for sure. I didn't know or care about the explanation, finishes Dadko. All I knew is that my friend was alive and back on the base that very night. Uh, Miss Delgado then introduces Buddy Larson, a folksy country boy. He says he owes his life to Captain Adam and begins to share his story. As a boy, Buddy was very sick. Doctors didn't know exactly what he had, but knew he'd be dead within a week. Uh, Buddy mentions that his father was an Air Force mechanic, and that is presumably how Captain Adam found out about his sickness. Cap shows up in Buddy's hospital room, takes the boy by the hand, and abducts him. Uh, the two fly off into space. Luckily, Buddy has a child-sized astronaut suit to wear as he rides Captain Adams back into outer space. They land on an asteroid and begin to play tag. What the kid didn't know, but Captain Adam did, was that the asteroid's radiation had healing properties that completely cured the boy. And that story was lifted from Space Avengers number 40, was titled The Boy in the Stars. Uh, Teresa Delgado next gives the floor to Matilda and Harry Dennison. Matilda tells a tale of she and her then-new husband, Harry, being lost at sea on the other side of the world in a life raft after their boat capsized. They drifted into a naval atomic testing area and were in danger of being vaporized by a hydrogen bomb when Captain Adam appeared out of nowhere. They watched him come in as the bomb detonated. He scooped up their raft and flew them to the safety of a nearby resort island. He swore the denizens to secrecy, promising that they would be able to tell their story one day. The last speaker introduced is a Russian cosmonaut named Yuri Voskov. 25 years earlier, the guidance system on his orbiting spacecraft failed, and he began to spiral towards the planet's surface. Out of his window, he sees Captain Adam grab hold of the craft and guide it safely to the spot where it was intended to splash down. Uh, Yuri says that Captain Adam revealed himself to the Soviets only because he knew they'd never admit that their cosmonaut was rescued by an American superhero. This part of the story is a paraphrased version of the second man in space from Space Adventures number 34. Miss Delgado excuses herself and goes into an adjoining room where General Eiling and Dr. Uh, Megala, or Megala, depending on your preferred pronunciation, were watching the meeting through a two-way mirror. 
The two are not happy with the performance they just witnessed. Of course, the story of Captain Adam gaining his powers in a NASA mishap and being a superhero in secret for years was a lie. All of the speakers at the Friends of Captain Adam meeting are paid actors, and the General and Megala found inconsistencies in their stories. Eiling suggests changing Buddy's story from being flown to the asteroid belt to being flown to the Arctic, where he was exposed to healing radiation. He suggests changing the Denison story and having Cap approach from a different direction as they would have been blinded if they watched him come in from the direction of the blast. Eiling also suggests they change Yuri's story so that Captain Adam releases the capsule parachute and can remain unseen by everyone except Yuri. Lastly, he he orders uh, Datko to lose the screwdriver prop. Dr. McGalla finds the whole charade distasteful, prompting General Eiling to very briefly sum up Captain Adam's real origin story from Captain Adam number one. Nathaniel Adam, an Air Force captain, was a condemned traitor who volunteered to be the test subject in a government experiment. Megala and Ealing detonated an atom bomb under him to see if the alien metal would protect him. The metal not only protected Nate, but bonded with him and transported him 18 years into the future and endowed him with amazing powers. Megala leaves in a huff. Uh, Miss Delgado hands the actors their new scripts, and they run through their parts again. Uh, and that is the end of that origin story, if you can call it that. <laughs> the origin was sort of an afterthought tacked on at the end there. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for giving us the origins, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I read this, I didn't get it. I mean, this I, I read this origin story before I read any issues from his series. And I was like, what the hell am I getting here? What What yeah. is the story? And, and I knew that he had had previous incarnations at Charlton, so I kind of – I was like – why are they focusing on his old costume? I just I, I didn't have the context for it. After I read the first couple issues of his series, and I think it's is it issue three or issue four that basically sets up like the when the government kind of outs him but presents the big lie of what his backstory is. I believe that is uh, issue three actually. Okay. Two or three. I'm not sure. I'd have to uh, I'd have to pull them up to tell you exactly the issue numbers. But it was it was. In the first five issues, definitely. Yeah, it was, it was definitely one of those. And I, I read those, and I was like, okay, that's brilliant, actually. They need to cover it up, because they can't just tell everybody that this new super atomic-powered character who can, like, blow up the world <laughs> at a whim <laughs> is a condemned traitor given these powers in, like, a government experiment, like, 20 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. So they need to come up with a backstory and that is how they fold in the old Charlton adventures. That what yes. he did in the Silver and Bronze Age at Charlton, that those are lies perpetrated by the government as a cover story to say that this guy was a secret agent of the U.S. all along. And I thought that was a brilliant move. Just I don't know if that was Bates' idea or Dick Giordano's or somebody, but it was. I got to that part and I was like, oh, I like that. That yeah. is such a great idea, such a unique idea. And so then I came back and reread this story and I was like, all right, I'm getting it. So now we're going through, like, these are the specific lies that are being told. And we've got these actors spreading this disinformation about who Captain Adam was and they're able to incorporate these backstories. But then, as you pointed out, I got to the end of it and I was like, hang on, wait a minute. Hmm. The actual origin for this character post-crisis is tacked on, like, Two paragraphs in the middle of one of the last pages. Yep. They really could have spaced this out a little bit more and given more credence to that. And I know his series was new at the point, but I think like the first 20 or 22 issues of Captain Adam were out. So it might have been difficult to find that first issue still. 
Yeah, they had actually just done their second annual. Okay. Uh, it was just after uh, Captain number 22 and then annual number two. So, yeah, he'd been out there for almost two years at this point. I, I love the whole idea of this. I liked the way they brought out all of these old adventures to repurpose them. It was a, I think it was a cool idea. I wish they spent more time on revisiting what his actual post-crisis origin was from the first issue of his series. Absolutely. So. Um, of course, the, the, the real origin of Captain Adam, you know, the fact that he was uh, guilty of a crime, uh, you know, that dragged on forever and ever until it was finally revealed that mm, he wasn't actually guilty of that crime after all. And that was a question that I had, and hopefully you could answer this, is what was he convicted of treason for? Treason is a big charge. Uh, he, was, uh, he had supposedly killed his commanding officer in... Um, in Vietnam, I believe. Okay. And uh, it turned out that uh, it was actually, of all people, um, Ealing was involved, uh, General Ealing, or Colonel Ealing at the time. And some other people were, were all involved in this uh, murder of this guy. I believe it had something to do with uh, drugs, but I can't recall exactly. It's, it's been a few years since I read that one. But I do know that uh, he was eventually exonerated. And Ealing was never his role was never discovered, so he never suffered uh, any consequences for what he did. That doesn't surprise me. No, no. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Because I I got to the first issue, I was like, "Hang on, wait a minute. This guy is being sentenced. This it's basically a suicide mission. He's in part of this experiment. It's to save him from being executed." I was like, "What was this guy's crime of?" Because that's a major part of a character's backstory, and he's not acting like a criminal. He's not acting like a bad guy throughout the series. No, no So he's what not. could this guy have been doing? And, of course, being a military officer, like, okay, he's an Air Force captain. Is, like, is it state secrets? Did he cover something up? What's going on? Did he expose a secret? Yep, just a good old-fashioned murder. <laughs> murder of a superior officer in Vietnam over drugs. Yeah, or possibly drugs. Possibly Most drugs. likely drugs. I think it was drugs. Hopefully. I think he was running some sort of an illegal drug ring. That was big over there in, in the 60s and 70s. So. Yeah, I saw the movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What were your overall thoughts on this story? Yeah, the story was great. I mean, uh, pretty much all of this was lifted from old uh, old Charlton comics. Uh, the Denison story, I don't think. I think that was new, the Stranded at Sea couple. But everything else was just, uh, you know, retooled uh, Ditko uh, Gill stories. But the way they wove them together, I thought, was, was pretty pretty genius. So, you know, it was good work. Bates and Weissman were the regular Captain Adam writers at the time, so it fits in with the continuity. Um, and I liked all the nods to Steve Ditko's original stories, definitely. It was, it was great to see Cap back in his yellow suit. Mm -hmm. The art, however, was not the best. I mean, I thought the first like splash of Captain Adam was really promising. It looked like it was going to go, you know, in a different direction. But this artist, uh, what was Alan Weiss, Alan Weiss. kind of uh, has a bit of a Liefeld thing going on. There's a, one point where you're looking at General Datko, and his hand is larger than his head. He's got a little tiny pea head. <laughs> I mean, the, it's, it's better than anything I could draw. I looked Alan Weiss up, and he'd been around for years, and he worked on a lot of different things, but I think he was just a kind of a constant uh, fill-in artist, like a journeyman. He did yeah. some issues of Spider-Man every couple of years. He did some issues of the Avengers every couple of years, but never did any really long runs on anything really noteworthy. I think more of his stuff appeared in genre books like romance or Western or mystery books. Yeah, the guy who inked this, uh, Joe Rubenstein, um, I found this quote from him on uh, Wikipedia. 
that said that Alan Weiss was the most difficult guy in the business to ink without exception. Uh, wow. Which, yeah, I thought that was a, a dig, but then apparently he goes on to say he really liked inking uh, Weiss's pencils. So I guess you had to be there. <laughs> well, looking at page four, because I was like, yeah, the art isn't really anything special. But then I get to page four, and it is a crowded page. There are 12 panels, and yes. they're not uniform. They're not all symmetrical panels. It's not like a grid. Uh, there's a lot of text on this, too. But talk about the pencils and the inks. Most of this page is just like technical stuff, like wiring bolts, things inside the spacecraft. Yes. It's it's crazy amount of detail. But I really like this. And in particular, we get the sequence down the left-hand column of the screwdriver falling. Yes. And just bouncing off of these different little things. And it's there's a little bit of a flow in the way the, the whole page works to the point where you get him screaming at the end that the countdown is still going on and he's trapped yes. there. I wouldn't think that this art was anything really special, but I love this page. This is a great page, yes. And they packed a lot in on this page, mm-hmm. especially considering that when you pull out the original, it was probably one panel. So they, they got a lot crowded in there. And it is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, tubes and wires and technical things going on. And it really is invokes the uh, claustrophobic nature of uh, what's going on with the captain at this time. It's it's good. I mean, like I said, I, I had high hopes for the art at the beginning, and I kind of some stuff was awkward, some stuff was great. In terms of the stories they chose to revisit and pay homage to, I gotta say, the boy in the stars is an odd choice. Yes, <laughs> and and maybe I've got too much of a modern sensibility, but I think even in the eighties, this image of you know grown superhero coming inside of a boy's bedroom, I guess a hospital room, but still. Yeah. Taking, taking him on this wondrous journey through the stars, the final panel on page nine of a captain carrying the boy who's in his little mini spacesuit <laughs> with a giant smile on his face. There, yeah, there there would have been Senate committee hearings over this page <laughs> a couple of decades earlier. Yeah, um, you know, like I said in in the when I read the description there that uh, Captain Adam straight out abducted this kid. <laughs> he flies to his window, grabs him up, and takes him into outer space. I mean. Were he my kid? I don't care how sick the kid is and how desperate I am. If 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 a superhero is taking him out into space, I'm going with him. You know, I'm yeah. not just let's just let this guy you know fly off into space with my kid, even if he does have a I don't know a chimpanzee spacesuit. <laughs> um, on that page, on nine, uh, the second panel where it shows him riding Captain Adam's back, that is a I guess an homage to uh, a panel that appeared in that issue originally in the '60s. It's uh, you know almost down to the detail. It's it's the same. There's the same image appears in that comic. I can see it, yeah. Except Ditko didn't draw kids very well, <laughs> and so in his in his version, the kid wasn't wearing a spacesuit for one thing, uh, in Ditko's version, and also he looked a little he did a little more like a chimpanzee. So <laughs> this is better than that. You know, I I hate to to diss Steve Ditko because I love him, but. Didn't draw kids well. <clears throat> I like the effect, and I know it was true to the time of the, those original stories. Whenever Captain Adam flew or used his powers, the sort of trailing little star burst kind of yes. like flicker effect. I loved that. I, I you know, it was the first thing I noticed on the first page is like, hey, he's got the little stars back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I loved those. <laughs> Uh, yeah, speaking of that creator, Steve Ditko, this year we've got a Doctor Strange movie and Spider-Man appearing in Civil War. What do you think of the chances that Captain Adam shows up in the Suicide Squad movie? 
I think he's probably got bad chances of showing up in the Suicide Squad movie. Um, is uh, Nightshade in the Suicide Squad movie? I don't think she, she is. She is not. Maybe the sequel. No. Hopefully she'll be in the sequel. Well, then maybe you know, maybe there'll be some mention of him. But he's not a big marquee character. Uh, I don't think he's ever going to appear on the screen. I think the closest we're ever going to get is that Watchmen movie. I would love to see a Captain Adam movie, but I don't think anything like that will ever happen. He was sort of uh, mentioned in the Flash TV series in the first season uh, when Barry Allen is tracking down the location of Plastique. He goes to Plastique's boyfriend's house, and the boyfriend is Cameron Scott, and Cameron Scott is Captain Adams. Um, That's his alias, right? One of his aliases, yeah, yes, yeah. one of his secret identities. So I had high hopes that he was going to show up. And, of course, Eiling appears in the same episode. With, uh, But, you know, that's, I think that's the closest we're ever going to get to seeing Captain Adam on the silver screen. I'd like to believe that he might have a, a movie, but I just – I don't think anybody knows what to do with him. He's just got too many powers. He's got too hard to write, I think. Yeah. Back to the origin, you mentioned that the, the couple that's lost at sea who get rescued, you think that one was an original that's not based on a classic story? Yeah. I mean, I've read all of the uh, old 1960s uh, comics up until he was purchased by DC, and that is not ringing a bell. Everything else here is, but I think that was an original story to this to this issue. That's interesting that they chose to do that, then, because I would have preferred they use that sort of page real estate to actually focus on what the true origin of the character was. Definitely. It was it was unnecessary. I mean, they, they didn't have to do more than I mean, they could have just stuck with the uh, you know, the origin story and the and the cosmonaut. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would have been good enough and then given more pages to the actual origin of Captain Adam. Mm-hmm. But I loved seeing him prancing around in the old yellow suit again, so with the stars. So uh, I was okay with it. Overall, I really liked this story once I had the, the framework for it, once I had the context. Like I said, I, I think it's it's decent art. I think there are some pages that are really good. It's not necessarily eye-catching or you know jaw-dropping, but it's fine. I wish we got more emphasis on what, at the time, the current origin was. I wish we spent a little bit more time from him. But I do like the setup, and I like the way this is framed as, you know, Eiling trying to sell the lie of what this character's backstory was to the public and using these other witnesses, sort of quote-unquote witnesses, to help sell the lie for them. So overall, I I like the story. I liked what it did for the character. Could it have been better? Yes, but I I enjoyed this piece. And those people that were sharing their stories, I gotta say, Eiling probably straight up killed them after this was done. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, knowing what I know about that character... He didn't like loose ends, so I think after this, after they got their starts, their stories right, and they were recorded for posterity, I think they got lined up and uh, you know a bullet in the head for each one. General Eiling is such a magnificent bastard. I, <laughs> I like that character so much in the few sh- issues that I've read from the series. Definitely, like, yes, he. Uh, like right from the beginning, when he, when Captain Adam comes back after being gone for eighteen years, when Eiling recognizes him and realizes what's happened, and tries to execute him and tries to take yep. him down to protect himself and to protect the story, and so yeah, so for people who don't know, let's let's little kind of revisit what the actual story was after Crisis. You've got this character Nathaniel Adam, U.S. Air Force, convicted of treason, volunteers to be part of this. A sort of atomic test to have they keep referencing to have an atom bomb exploded under his butt <laughs> to see if this alien metal shell can protect him and during the explosion it looks like he's atomized and, and just gone 
But for him, he wakes up thinking it's only been like a few minutes or hours later. It's actually been almost 20 years later. Yeah, he's it was telling... 19, it was 1968 when yes. he disappeared. And he comes back in 86, 87. He's in mid-sentence uh, mid when he disappears. Yeah, he's telling a joke. He's telling a joke. And when he reappears the same spot 18 years later, he's finishing the joke. Yeah, he's given the punchline. And that's yeah, what Eiling remembers. Pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So then, but throughout this time, you know, like he, he gave Eiling this letter to give to his wife and his newborn kids. When he comes back, his kids are grown up. His wife has died. Not only has she died, she remarried Wade Eiling. She remarried this guy's arch enemy. Yes. And that what is did he, uh, up. <laughs> did she see what he did with that letter? Yeah, he ripped it in half. He never he ripped gave it. the letter up and threw it away. <laughs> So, like, just in terms of introducing a new character and a villain that you just loathe but love to hate him so much, it's like, man, Bates was really knocking those first couple issues out of the park. Yes, definitely. It it was intriguing from the get-go. And then you've got Dr. Megala, or Megala, looks like a freaky science fiction villain. It's basically his head is on a wheelchair with robot arms. And not even, even like, natural robot arms, like IG-88 stick figure robot arms. (laughs) With this manservant named, um, God, what is his manservant's name? Babylon. Babylon. Perfect. <laughs> and Dr. Megala, who looks like evil incarnate, you would think, from a science fiction story, is actually the guy who shows mercy and ha- feels bad for Captain Adam. And kind of, he gives pushback for, to Eileen and tries to protect Captain Adam at times. All the while looking kind of like Davros from Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Except with the IG-88 arms. <laughs> So I, I liked the, I liked the character a lot more. Again, this was somebody because my first experience was Extreme Justice. I thought he had a cool look, but I never really gave him much thought or much regard until I started reading his '80s series in preparation for this. Uh, and with just a couple of issues, I really like where they're going. I dig in it. I want to know more about this character. So my I gotta say I. I... Personally, I mean, I, this is not a popular opinion, but I really loved Extreme Justice. <laughs> I mean, it, it had some of my favorite characters. You had uh, Captain Adam, Booster Gold, Firestorm, yeah. Blue Beetle, all together, and then the Wonder Twins. I mean, come on. <laughs> it had all the elements of a really great series. It could have been so much better, and I, I liked it for what it was, but I loved it. Really, I loved it. Well, when you get to that series on the Silver and Gold podcast in a couple of years, yeah, <laughs> we will we will experience it vicariously through that. Yes, and you'll you'll all learn what is really great about it, and, and new appreciation for Extreme Justice will be found. <laughs> Other recommended readings for this character? Well, there is a um, still available on Amazon the uh, Action Heroes Archives Volume One, Captain Adam. It collects all of the uh, Silver and Bronze Age Captain Atom stories from Space Adventures issues 33 to 42, and then Captain Atom number 78 to 82. Uh, actually, that's just the Silver Age Captain Atom. Just the yellow costume Captain Atom is featured in that, but definitely that is something that I would uh, love to have. I've never purchased it, but I have the original comics, so I never felt the need. But I'd love to have it someday just to take up space on my shelf and collect dust. <laughs> also, the you know, of course, all of these are available on the uh, Digital Comic Museum. They're all public domain comics. So you go there, you can find all of these old adventures of Captain Adam. Uh, as far as the modern age Captain Adam is concerned, um, I don't think his stuff has ever been collected in any sort of trade. Uh, Not yet. I'm hoping so. Again, the Comixology has the first 30 or so issues yeah. of the series. 
I, I hope uh, they continue to collect the whole thing. But yeah, it would be nice if we got some trades. It was uh, it was a really great series building up to issue number fifty, and then after fifty, it sort of took a, a downward spiral. Even though the writer was uh, somebody I really liked, it was um, Ostrander. It had promise, but after you know the whole thing with his original crime was put to rest. It's like uh, nobody was interested in him anymore. You know, he's just your regular run-of-the-mill superhero now. They took him in a different direction with that Armageddon 2001, and uh, his series got canceled as a result of that or sales. I don't know. Well, do you have a favorite storyline or a favorite arc of the character? I do. I believe it was in the uh, the 40s of his series. He ended up dying and had to travel through hell or the afterlife to get back to his body in the real world. And that whole story, uh, I believe it was around Catdown number 42, perhaps. That whole story was probably my favorite of all time. Uh, just the, the elements of him going through hell and meeting people there that helped him and made very little Captain Adamness in it. You know, there's no, he's not blasting bad guys, really. He's just, it's a personal inner struggle that he's going through. And that is definitely my favorite storyline. But uh, read the whole thing, it's all out there. <laughs> All 57 issues and two annuals. They're all good. Um, Any final thoughts on the character before we go? Just, you know, if anybody needs a rebirth, it's Captain Adam. Uh, Let's bring him back. Let's depower him a little bit and uh, put him back in the silver skin and give him his own series again. That's all I got to say. Sounds good. (laughs) Where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? I wouldn't bother. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have a podcast uh, that I do with my buddy uh, Roy Charlemagne Cleary, the Silver and Gold podcast, available at iTunes and Stitcher, or at my blog at CaptainAdamBlog.com. We talk about the uh, original run of Booster Gold and Captain Adam. We sort of we borrowed the format from uh, the Fire and Water original Fire and Water podcast, where he does an issue of Booster and I do an issue of Captain Adam. It's lots of fun for me, at least. I don't know how fun it is to listen to, but I love talking about it. And like I said, that is on uh, Stitcher and iTunes. It's Silver and Gold podcast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, FKA Jason on Twitter, and Silver uh, SNG Pod. That's how you follow me. So. Great. Well, thank you very much. And I do listen to Silver and Gold. I've subscribed to it, and it's a fun show. I enjoy it all the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it means a lot. I mean, your podcast, uh, Secret Origins podcast, is in definitely in my top five. It is one of my favorite, and I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so Great. I'm truly honored to be here. Well, thank you very much. It was awesome to have you on the show. Thanks, Ryan. All right, people, do not go away because I'll be back after this break with the origin of Rocket Red. Hello listeners, I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I am the host of the Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. Secret Sagas of the Multiverse is a review and discussion show where I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts take on topics related to comic books, superheroes, genre fiction, movies, television, and much more. We look at comics and comic characters across the many different media out there, from original print source material to the recent renaissance of television, movies, and digital media. If you love geek culture as much as we do, then tune in to our semi-weekly podcast series. 
Episodes of this and other Pope to Pixel podcasts can be found at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, the Pulp to Pixel podcast Facebook page, through iTunes, or through Stitcher under the Pulp to Pixel podcast. out of a comic book the pulp to pixel podcasts exploring the media multiverse of geek culture you meddled in things My next guest is the host of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, which includes the wonderful Index show, Welcome to Astro City, as well as the general comics discussion show, Secret Sagas of the Multiverse. Please welcome Dr. G, the man of nerdology. How are you doing, buddy? Great, great. Great to be here on uh, Secret Origins. No, I'm glad that you could do this. I've wanted to record with you for a while, and I'm a big fan of Pulp to Pixel shows, so it's great to have you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, no, uh, same back to you. I I myself have been really wanting to be able to get onto one of the Secret Origin shows. They've been a lot of fun, and it's been a a great trip back through, like, DC's history listening to these. Thank you for saying so. Um, (laughs) Folks, Dr. G is here to talk about the Justice League International's resident Ruski, Rocket Red. Uh, Are you a fan of this character? Uh, Yeah, in the sense that he's, like... He's a good sort of like one note joke character I've always enjoyed in he he's of a time. He always reminds me of that sort of like lovable communist from the eighties, late eighties, when it was sort of like Glasnost and they were trying to kind of become more progressive as a country and they were it was less like, Oh, maybe we won't blow each other up with bombs <laughs> you know. So and more like, Hey, maybe we're 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 all just people and stuff. So so it was a much more interesting time. But yeah, he always represents it in the Justice League for that. And and I've always liked the idea of like Russian superheroes too. Just the fact that like, you know, why does America just have all the superheroes? Mm-hmm. You know, I like the idea of like there being super teams all over the world. Yeah, I do too. And I certainly, there's something naturally sort of iconic about him. I think it kind of feels fitting for the the sort of perception of the communal communist kind of faceless entity that it wouldn't just be this one hero like Marvel's like Red Guardian or something, but the right. Rocket Red Brigade. That it's a yeah. whole army or a whole like squadron of these figures with all kind of the same outfit, the same physical appearance. But among them, we get this one individual that we can spotlight, that we can showcase, who's teamed up with, quote unquote, our heroes uh, right. that we're familiar with. And he was very much played for laughs in Justice League International. 
<laughs> but then again, everybody was played for laughs in Justice League International. Yeah, um, true. And, and he true. did kind of fit the cultural, you know, confusion aspect of, you know, here is a character who comes from a society that we've been at an intellectual war with for decades. Mm-hmm. So there's this distrust, but he's just an, mm-hmm. a sincere, earnest character, the Rocket Red that we're talking about. And he's just, right. he's kind of lovable because he's dumb and because he doesn't get a lot of the customs and idioms. And for mm-hmm. most of his appearances in Justice League International, he didn't speak well. He misused the idioms. He misused the language. Mm-hmm. And that was good for jokes. But you felt like you could trust him. Like, he tried very hard to make sure that you could trust him. And that's what I well, liked he, about him. Yeah, he was a stand-up guy. I always, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm a fan of, while the very, like, John Constantine, I'm a total jerk <laughs> hero is kind of fun, I'm a fan of, like, that just is just a nice stand-up guy. That's why he's a superhero, you know? And I, I, I like that. I like that aspect of the character, too. It, I think it's a, a little earnest and, and simple, but, hey, so are comic books for most part, so... <laughs> So it's kind of hitting right in the middle of the bullseye on that one. And I liked, I liked that he was essentially a soldier from his country. And it just goes to kind of being that stand-up guy that he became a hero because he was committed to service. Because he wanted yeah. to make, whether it was Russia or whether it was the whole world, a better, safer place. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And genuine and natural about that that I like. Yeah, I, I also... Um... As I was been thinking about the character, he also reminds me of one of the characters from 2010, the sequel to um, the one that became friends with John Lithgow's character, whose name is totally escaping me. Um, I cannot remember the name of the char- the actor or the character off the top of my head, but but he had that. They had that same sort of like, you know, that movie came out around around the same time and is very much that sort of oh, where it's Russia and America deadlocked in sort of Cold War politics, mm-hmm. but this group of Americans and this group of Russians working together out in space, and it's like that really doesn't matter. You know, and they become friends and he and he has the same thing where he has like he'll use American idioms incorrectly. And there's this sort of like very endearing sort of moment where they sort of, you know, Lithgow and him, you know, always have these exchanges back and forth where they're correcting each other about each other's culture. And I felt that was kind of at his best. That's what Red Rocket was doing, feeling that same niche that I loved from that movie. When did you discover the character in the comics? I would say closer in the 90s because I I started picking those books up as um, trade paperbacks and back issues. But I it was the Justice League. It was the Giffen de Matias, David Tejas, I should say, uh, Maguire Justice League was where my first impressions. And then I would say the DC Heroes role playing game from the supplements. Those are like the two places I have my like main Red Rocket knowledge from. That's about it. And that's where I, I pretty much it. And as far as I was concerned, it pretty much covered everything I needed to know <laughs> on that part. So, okay. um, But yeah, Justice League International, I'd say the third issue, second or third issue, the one where they're in, where they actually fight heroes from the other dimension. Right. That's, yeah, it was issue three. Yeah, issue three. And oh, that's the one where Black Canary kicks out his teeth. <laughs> and then when he joins the team later and she sees that, she's like, oh, wait, didn't I kick you in the teeth? <laughs> he's like, oh, it's fine. It was, we're just, it was almost like, oh, it was a rugby match. That's what happened. <laughs> you know, these things happen. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, using that to segue into the character's yes. publication history, uh, as mm-hmm. always, if you think I leave something out or if I neglect something, uh, please correct me or throw something in at the end. Oh, sure. Uh, the publication history for Rocket Red is different because we're talking about a single character named Dmitri Pushkin, 
but he is only one member of a mostly faceless Rocket Red Brigade. The first appearance of the Rocket Reds was in late 1986 in the pages of Green Lantern Corps issues 208 through 210. The Russian government wanted their own super soldiers and enlisted the help of the alien Green Lantern Kilowog in developing and training their Rocket Red forces. That three-issue story arc culminated with Guy Gardner nearly starting World War III between the United States and Russia. And I'm sure that comes as absolutely no surprise to anyone who follows Guy Gardner. (laughs) The Rocket Reds next appeared in Justice League issue 3, where, once again, Guy Gardner was at the forefront of an international incident. In Justice League issue 7, one of the Rocket Reds was put on the Justice League as a condition of the United Nations granting the League international status. However, that red, Vladimir Mikoyan, was revealed to be a Manhunter sleeper agent and destroyed in a replacement rocket red, Dimitri, the one that we care about, took his place in Justice League International issue 11 and stayed with the team for the next year. When the cast of JLI became too large and the book popular enough to merit a spin-off, Rocket Red joined Justice League Europe. He appeared in roughly three-fourths of the 50 issues of Justice League Europe. Throughout the 90s and early aughts, Rocket Red has selective appearances, but nothing noteworthy that I'm aware of. Uh, Dimitri died in issue 5 of the OMAC project. A new Rocket Red named Gavril Ivanovich, who was technically a disgraced former member of the group, joined several members of the old Justice League International in the maxi-series Justice League Generation Lost. This Rocket Red, Ivanovich, was in the New 52 Justice League International, but was killed in issue 7 of that series. Any significant Rocket Red stories or appearances that I failed to mention? No, that pretty much covers everything. Uh, yeah, it's just basically the the Green Lantern, then it's all Justice League International, and Justice League and Europe. Then, yeah. Justice League Europe, where I have to say he was buffed out by Bart Sears, super yeah. buffed out by Bart Sears, but um, that's about it. Yeah, no, he's he's been a very, like I said, he's very one-note sort of character, and after the fall of Russia, he's kind of, Soviet Russia, he sort of like loses some of his cachet yeah. and, and doesn't really come back again. Yeah. So, Dr. G, are you ready to tell our guests the origin of Rocket Red? Yes, 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 I am. So the secret origin of Rocket Red is titled, Did You Hear the One? Scripted by William Messner Loeb's, penciled by Irv Novik, inked by Joe Rubenstein, lettered by Helen Vesic, colored by Gene D'Angelo, and edited by the boy editor, Mark Wade. The story opens with a Russian general in a very agitated state speaking with the premier of Russia, Mikhail Gorbachev, about betrayal and treason within the ranks of the Red Rocket Brigade. They then call in Dmitry, Red Rocket 4, into the office to answer to these charges. The uh, general is very aggressive, wants immediate answers, but... Gorbachev takes a much more lighter hand and asks him to recount his story, backstory, sort of tell his side of things and, you know, assures him he's not on trial. But you definitely get the impression he's on trial. So they lay it out very quickly that the Russians were concerned about the rise of superheroes in the West and their sort of lack of superhero presence as sort of a kind of superhero arms race. And so they themselves were looking into creating their own superheroes, of which the Red Rocket Brigade has probably been one of their most successful outings. 
we get a, a sort of quick moment where Dimitri has spouts the party line about how a lot of the their technology had been stolen by the by the West and it was all basically the the Russian propaganda where Gorbachev really kind of lays it out, the truth to him, that they had been trying to create super soldiers to some pretty disastrous effects. Um, we have at least one panel where someone is blowing up as part of the experiment and not to return, and then <laughs> monsters killing everybody else. Then we get a panel with Kilowog, and we see that he provided help to their technology to help them finally fully develop their super soldier program. From that, they eventually were able to develop their Red Rocket Brigade armor, which they then immediately outfitted on some of many of their soldiers. But at the time, also ran afoul of the American Green Lanterns, in particular Guy Gardner, in which there was a conflagration between multiple Green Lanterns and the Red Rocket Brigade that nearly ended in a nuclear war, as the Green Lanterns at the last minute were able to avert, and even did cost the life of one of the leaders of the Red Rocket Brigade at the time, Joseph Denisovich. Denisovich. There you go. Now, we're then brought to what was really bringing him here. Dimitri, who has taken over as the liaison to the Justice League International, is come into question because of his contact with the West, but also because of his association with family members that are Jewish intellectuals that want to get out of the country. So they're applying to get to Israel. So he has a brother-in-law and a sister who are trying to leave the country. The general uses this as leverage against him to accuse him of being a traitor and harboring dissidents. Um, The basic standard, I would say, (laughs) Russian general villain from a Bond movie sort of situation. (laughs) We then get to the, the basic crux of it where... Dimitri's pretty much being asked to denounce his sister and his brother-in-law as a way of saving face because as a member of the Red Rocket Brigade, and specifically one who's part of the Justice League, he's too important to the Russian political power structure to fall on or be considered a traitor. And then we actually get what I felt was a fairly introspective discussion by Gorbachev, at least Master Loeb's through the voice of Gorbachev, discussing the sort of political situation of the time where this Cold War has been a spending war and the Russians are slowly losing it. And Gorbachev is trying to promote change and reform, but the entrenched power structure in there fights against him and he even fears assassination. And so we see that he puts... Dimitri in a position where Dimitri has to choose to help towards this progress, but by doing so, sacrifice his family members and in many ways his principles. Now, for a very heavy moment, they ended on a a bit of a joke with Gorbachev asking Dimitri to tell them a joke that the people say about him on the streets, further illustrating part of his political situation he's in. Now, it's really dreamers and poets and, and philosophers who are behind him, but not the people of power that need to make the change. But before any pesky, real moral questions have to be answered, the general very inexplicably turns into some sort of robotic monster with a cannon coming out of his mouth, cannons coming out of his hands, and makes an attempt on the premiere. 
Luckily, he has a superhero standing around waiting to fight these off. Red Rocket pops on his helmet, defends the premiere, blocking some shots with his body, and then sends back fire, quickly showing that he has superior firepower, and quickly also doing uh, what I think is a, a quick power inventory of here's one blast, and then a plasma blast, and then my charged riot net. It was almost like preparing for the action figure. <laughs> And then grabs the the robotic general before he self-destructs, flies him into the air where he explodes. Luckily, the red rocket armor is powerful enough to survive it. Comes back into the ruined office of the premier, who seems pretty okay about it. He's like, these things happen, <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> and we end with him basically saying, well, I just helped you out, Gorbachev. Could you sign the paper to get my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law to get to emigrate to Israel? And that's where we end. Um, I don't know about you, but that last bit with the general, did Zany like just write that <laughs> instead? That that's Bob Haney, like I feel it, channeled to the extreme. <laughs> it definitely felt like that. It reminded me of the movie From Dusk Till Dawn, where it's oh, like yeah. you're going along with this really kind of you know insightful, gripping crime drama, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it's like, well, we don't know where to go, so screw it, vampires. I know. <laughs> just like, hey, we're just going to kill everybody with vampires. I'm reading the same thing. I was like, okay, how, what's going on? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I I was just, reading this again last night in preparation, and it was probably my like, third or fourth read-through to this story. And, okay, there's this actually, at the very beginning of it, there's this nice kind of like retelling of, you know, the origin of the Red Rocket. Uh-huh. And, you know, and it lays it out pretty well. And I'm I'm a fan of any, like, retelling the history of a superheroes in like four or five panels yeah, and yeah, yeah. the fact that the medium can do that so effectively. So I love that. But then all of a sudden, and there's this actually like, I'd say fairly like smart and cogent, you know, discussion of, you know, the politics of the time, you know, and, and I, I really, feel like that's what Mesner Loeb's wanted to do. I think, I feel yeah. like this was just an excuse for him to write about what was going on in Soviet union at this critical point. Cause this is, really kind of on the cusp of the Soviet Union falling and going westernized yeah. and everything. And it feels like this is what he wants to talk about. And in the middle, he's just going to surround it with this other superhero stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, no, no. It's, and if that attack at the end had not happened or they'd found some other way to end the story, I thought it would have been a great like little piece. It would have been like really some strong writing for the series because it – it still showed Red Rocket as that sort of, I'd say almost, you know, naive but earnest uh-huh. Soviet citizen who believes like, you know, it's not like, oh, they see themselves also as the villains of the story. But rather, you know, no, no, they completely see that they're, what their their way of life is right and this isn't amoral and they're not being oppressed but actually, you know, part of this like sort of shared system. And he, he truly believes it. You can see in his dialogue and his actions, but you also get the sort of, well, well, this is really what's happening and, and this is what we know. And, and I felt there's a little bit of like, I almost felt like Gorbachev in this is very much like, so well painted, I felt like, you know, it's a sort of like the ally to the West within the power structure of Russia trying to make change. Right, right. And which in many ways is how I saw him at the end, you know, as a kid at the end, because I was like 12 when this issue would have come out. Sure. And was way into comic books, so not really paying a, as much attention to geopolitics <laughs> as all that. And they, they paint him as, I mean, within his monologue, he sounds very humble. He sounds very, like, vulnerable. 
yeah. and how precarious his position is, mm-hmm. which is interesting because like two years after this is when he becomes president of Russia. Like clearly he yeah. wasn't that vulnerable. He he clearly had more people on his side than he thinks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he his portrayal is great. Um, I don't know about your copy, but my copy, like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Gorbachev is famous for a number of things, but most people on this side of the world just think about him with the birthmark. I think it's, yeah, it's very superficial, but we associate him with the birthmark on his head. And most of the art in this, the birthmark isn't penciled. It's just like a coloring distortion. There's only yeah. like three or yeah. four panels where you can actually see the lines yeah. I wonder if they were trying to Well, they do name him later because I felt yeah. at first that it were like they were trying to be a faceless right. you know, sort of faceless bureaucrat within the sort of the Russian bureaucracy. But really he's you know, they're they're very much no, this is spot on who right. Gorbachev is and, and he's partially the hero of the piece in that sense. Or at least has like a very I feel like a an impassioned heroic monologue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about politics of Russian society at the time, and you know how it's like. Well, we 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 sell you propaganda too, right, <laughs> you right. know. He pretty much flat out says, "Oh, so you believe that, right? right. Yeah. Here, let me let me lay some knowledge on you, son. <laughs> you know." Um, but it's I think it's you know one of the things I've always loved is that like Kilowog's involvement. I've always loved the idea that Kilowog showed up and as an alien probably was even like, oh, I don't see anything wrong with what's going on here. Like, as long as he didn't see the oppressive nature of the culture. Right, exactly. And that was yeah. kind of the point of those Green Lantern core issues was he was like, yeah, this this communist structure, this is more like my homeworld. I feel like I fit in here. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's actually, I think there's a bit of that brought me, I think it's on page four when it flashes back and it shows kind of the recap of those three issues. Yeah. Uh, the second panel, it shows Hal Jordan and Kat Matui kind of investigating, like following Kilowog to the Soviet right. Union and getting captured. I'm pretty sure in the comics it was Kat Matui and Jon Stewart, not Hal. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I haven't been able to um, – they don't – they didn't have the issues digitally on Comixology, so I – mean, I mean, I know Guy Gardner was a very big part of that story, and I don't think he's in yeah. this page at all. No, I, he he doesn't appear at all in the story. Um, I don't think he's even ref named in the no. story. And yet, if anyone's causing problems in Russia in the '80s as a Green Lantern, that was Guy Gardner's like job description, <laughs> as far <laughs> as I could tell. He just showed up to to basically be. And you know, it's very interesting because it's I. I when we look at it, he's also the worst of American intentions as well. You're right. You know, where if we compare those two characters, Guy Gardner and then Red Rocket, we see that in Red Rocket, we see, well, this is where it really could be the best part of about, like, you know, this someone who's grown up under communist Russia, you know, who who hasn't necessarily faced its, uh, the hardships of its oppression that we, you know, we knew about or later would discover. It, you know, he, it's, he's earnest and he believes in, like, you know, doing his part and protecting people and, you know, basically good, decent human things. And, and then you get Guy Gardner, who's extremely representative of, I think, like, a, you know, the, the extreme, extreme of Americanisms uh-huh. and jingoism at the time. And you're just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh, wow. Now, to be fair, he did have a Green Lantern power battery blow up in his face. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, like, which, let's just lay it out, did give him brain damage. <laughs> and so, um, oh, how terrible is that? Like, if you think back to that, like, they just totally had a brain damage superhero running around with them on the Justice League. And we're co- totally okay with it. He gets hit on the head, has an entire personality change. That's brain damage. I mean, granted, it's a sitcom trope of the 80s and 90s and even today, but... Still, back then, it's like, hey, that guy probably needs medical attention. <laughs> I would refer back to the line. I, I don't remember what cartoon it came from, but just the, <laughs> the old excuse. It was the 80s. Everybody was on too much cocaine to notice. <laughs> true enough. True uh, enough. Getting back to the plot, which you mentioned, seems like uh, he was cha- what Mesner Lopes was channeling uh, zany Bob Haney in this. The general, and we'll come back to the general later, but the general and Secretary Gorbachev, they call in the Rocket Red for the purpose of just figuring out, okay, where does your allegiance stand? Because you've got these family members who want to immigrate to Israel. This is a big deal. Yeah. But through this, like, it feels like it's not a natural progression to get them to say, okay, what do you know about the Rocket Red Brigade? And that's how we get the origin story with him kind of explaining this. Yeah, And I don't know if this was Mesner Loeb's trying to make a commentary on the compartmentalization and the paranoia of the Soviet Union, but it feels like if I'm calling like a Navy SEAL or a member of Delta Force into the office, I'm not going to ask him, so what do you know about the Navy SEALs or Delta Force? Like, I'm going to assume they already know because they're there. Or, He's in or, the costume already. Yeah, or, or more... Or more to the point, like, I'm about to assassinate this political head. Right. Let me let me on purpose demand that he bring a superhero into the room as well. You know, like And that just I mean, the, yeah, the this, this guy thwarted his plan from the beginning. <laughs> because the general's turn makes no sense. It doesn't like yeah. was this whole thing a test to see if Gorbachev would stand firm if he would be the hardliner like the the party wanted? Or if he was too soft and too complacent for Dimitri's sort of Western sympathies, and if like that was like kind of the buzzword that triggered this this kill order in him, I'm, that's what I'm guessing. Yeah. But I got to I, like I wrote down in my notes, General Turgenev turning into an assassin. WTF? Yeah. And then right after that, face is one long gun barrel. Double WTF? Oh yeah. No, like he looks like his head looks like a purple luchador mask. <laughs> With this massive gun barrel coming out of the nose mouth area. There was a and, he- and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's like a He-Man action figure. It was. It's like Mosquito or something like that. There was a, yeah. like, a mosquito version of like a He-Man action figure where his face is but you look at that, it's like that that is not functional. Like it that the barrel does not look collapsible, so how does it get that big? Like, how does I know. But at the same time, like, even though it doesn't make sense, I love the design for this, like, kill ro- this robot killer. Like, oh, no. I want to see yeah. that in another comic. But it's just... I just... No, no. I, I, I thought the design was just, like, totally wacky, but there's just no... It's got such a weird design aesthetic that you're like, okay, so who's the villain here? Why is it? But still, it's just the whole idea of was the point to it kill the Red Rocket or the Premier? Because if the point was to kill the Premier, he could have done it before the Red Rocket even showed up exactly. in the room. That's why I think you like, know? the only way this story makes sense is if bringing Dimitri into the room was yeah. all a test basically to just – to push Gorbachev into this position where he has to take a stance. The, is he a hardliner or not? And when he's not, that's like, well, I'm going to kill you. But you've already brought in the one guy who can stop you into the room. Exactly. Exactly. Like, it was like, like, give him a minute. Say, hey, will you wait outside for a second? Yeah. 
You know, I like the idea that if this was actually like a test by Gorbachev to test his loyalties. Yeah, if you, yeah. If Gorbachev like created this fake assassin robot, that would be interesting. But you can't save a story by speculation. The story <laughs> should have it in it if you want to save it. You right. Know? So I, they, there's nothing there. It's just and also the jokes are kind of timed badly. I mean, they're there and there's a certain like fun to it. And that's the other thing. It should have jokes in it because I just feel that this character is a comedy character and not to have some sort of comedic beat is sort of missing the point of the character well, especially as he was intended at the time. Right, and the title is the setup. The title is the yeah. setup for a punchline, and the punchline is sort of rolled over, not very funny anyway, but also just kind of bulldozed over. And yeah, they do seem to be kind of missing that. It's it's a weird story. It really kind of only works if you just like, okay, whatever. I can I can enjoy it for what it is. If oh, It doesn't yeah. hold up to a lot of scrutiny, but... I mean, maybe it shouldn't. Maybe this character isn't designed for that. No, I, I think you're hitting upon it. It's like th- th- he's he's Robin Williams from Moscow and the Hudson, and Yakov <laughs> yeah. Smirnoff, Smirnoff, or like like I said, the the character from 2010. He's that sort of one note sort of character. So there isn't much to do. I'm sure you know. Give him to a British writer in the 80s in DC, and they can come up with some really messed up backstory for him and really make him introspective. But you need that, you know. The Justice League International series, where he basically lived, was vaudeville for the most part. You know, they yeah. wrote it to be vaudeville jokes, and succeeded 100 percent across the board. So, so you know, it doesn't need to be more than that. It's just the general bit. It's I almost feel like it's an improv troupe and someone had written on a card and now the general is a kill robot. <laughs> what are you going to do? And that's how the last end of the, the story ends. And I was just like, okay. And then there's the joke at the end where it's sort of like he gets his thing signed and he's having to spell out the name. And there's there's kind of a joke at the end. But yeah, I know it's for, for having a title that basically builds it up as being a joke with a punchline. The punchline's kind of falls flat yeah. at the end of it. So I like the and, I like the two pages where you kinda of mentioned like the, the spotlight of all of his, his powers, like we're advertising the action figure. It's like an Iron Man comic at that point. Yeah. Which is fine because I like Iron Man comics. Oh yeah, yeah. And how great of an action figure would this make? Oh seriously. He's bulky enough, you know, at the time, like that bulkier characters would be perfect. He'd look like kind of like a mix between a G.I. Joe and a Transformer. Right, exactly. Perfect, yeah. And then later, oh, I, a couple issues after this, he got sort of redesigned within the pages of Justice League International, and that redesign yeah. was really cool too. Yeah, it was the Apocalyptian design. Yeah, 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 which he which he picked up, which also was very cool too. Uh, speaking of uh, Russian super teams, which we mentioned earlier, GI Joe October Guard. October Guard, yep. yes, which I, I knew would get you in your wheelhouse there. That was <laughs> oh, no. that was sort of how I tracked the evolution of the Soviet Union, like through my childhood was, oh yeah, the the Joes and the October Guard, they're they're bitter rivals, but they can come together when they have a common enemy. It's like, okay, well now they're not necessarily shooting at each other, they're just kind of like keeping secrets from each other. Oh, now they're basically teaming up. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. how we track 
Yeah, they're, yeah, they're basically friends, or, or or they've just become so marginalized that it doesn't matter. Yeah, I felt that's the same sort of characters. Yeah, they're yeah. my I tracked through. I think like yeah, movies of the eighties. Yep. Um, comic books and and TV shows gave me all my his my political history for the world of the eighties. You know, so which is terrible now that I think about it. <laughs> that actually remind you reminded me of the, the October Guard comment. On page two, when they bring him in, the general says, "Step in, Comrade Gorky." Yes, that's not I his name. That. And I, the only reason that jumped out at me is that is the name of one of the members of the October Guard. So I was like, "Did they, huh? did they not know his name?" Is that a was? And I looked at, I was like, "I don't think that's just kind of like an affectionate name for like you know like a, a friend or a shorthand version of something." Mm-hmm. I don't think the name Gorky is like that. It's a pretty common name. I think that just got through editing. Yeah. I think that that boy editor, Mark Wade, should not be allowed to – they shouldn't let him write comics either. Right, whatever. yeah, he's a total failure. He's never going to make it. Mark Wade, if you're listening, please don't listen to my joke like that. I love <laughs> you. Please don't do – stop writing. Never stop writing, please. <laughs> love his stuff. Mark Wade, if you're listening and you want to appear on this show, let me know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Good idea. That's a good one, too. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't really have too much else to say. About I don't this. either. It's Yeah, he's. we've said about as much as we can about it. The... It's fun, but if this were the only one I read, I would say interesting premise, but as a joke story, falls flat at the end. Doesn't like kind of stick the landing. I think where the writer wanted to go was a more serious exploration of the state of the Soviet Union at the time. And I think he wanted to have this conversation between Gorbachev and this, you know, kind of foot soldier. And because it's a comic and we need to do, we need to make it bigger, more bombastic than that, or through editorial, they're like, nope, you've got to have something else. Okay, then the third guy in the room turns into a kill, like a killer robot. I can accept it because it's fun, because it's comics. Does it make sense? No. But no. it was a harmless story. It didn't bother me, even when it didn't make sense. So I had, I had no dog in the fight, so right, I, wasn't exactly. too, I wasn't too worried. But I was, although, I gotta say, as stories go, this one strains the powers of the because comics explanation. <laughs> yeah. What about other... I mean, as we said in the, the publication history, the appearances of Rocket Red were fairly limited. If you can find yeah. those three issues, which isn't even the same Rocket Red, but if you can find the three issues of Green Lantern Corps that introduced the Rocket Red Brigade, those are pretty good. Yeah. But beyond that, you're really looking at Justice League International and Justice League Europe. Were there moments in those books that like kind of stood out more to you that you liked with the character? I'd say when Black Canary kicked him in the face <laughs> and I, it's, it's, it seems terrible, but it was just the fact that they had a callback to it later and it's <laughs> such a good joke and how good spirited he is about it. That was one of my favorite moments and that's over multiple issues. So uh, that kind of is an arc, but then other than that, no, he was just kind of like fly, blast, make joke about, you know, American idioms or, or you know, not be making a joke but end up being a joke because he gets it wrong. And that was about it. So, you know, his Justice League experiences I did enjoy, but uh, he didn't really come into the fore until Justice League Europe, I feel, where I felt there was a lot less um, – while there was still a lot of humor, there was a lot less of it with him. Um, they might have, like, tried to give him a little more seriousness – he kind of gets a little more weight as a character, but just his funny moments in the, the original Justice League run and the, then the Justice League International at the beginning is, I'd say, good enough. 
get those. They're on Comixology first, so buy those and, and enjoy those for, for the good comic fun they are. That series is brings the comic back into comic, yeah. the comic book, you know. And and uh, that was one of the really fun things about that series. So I definitely recommend that for sure. If the character of this particular Rocket Red Dimitri went away, <laughs> I would be fine with it. But I like the idea of the whole brigade, the whole army as the sort of Russian defense forces, that they have this kind of a merging of their soldiers and their air force into these kind yeah. of fighters. Because it is, it is like the idea of, you know, Iron Man as a whole Iron Force or something mm-hmm. like that. And I like the visual aesthetic of that. Reducing the aircraft to just like mm-hmm. a one-man exosuit, but still having a whole team of them going yeah. up against a Green Lantern or anybody. Uh, I, I just think as a as a visual idea, it's really, really cool. So I, I will always like the Rocket Reds for that. You know, as you were saying that, I was like, oh, well, there's a great place to take it. Almost to have it be like a Top Gun 80s, like Russian fighters versus American fighters. And with Hal Jordan being a pretty much a, a test pilot, you know, slash yeah. fighter pilot, that'd yeah. be a perfect sort of fit, too. Yeah. You know, with them having their history with the Green Lantern Corps. But that didn't happen, so... (laughs) Oh, well. Well, Dr. G, where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? All right. Check us out at thepulptopixel.blogspot.com, where I have mostly the episodes of Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, our comic book sort of geek culture discussion show, Welcome to Astro City Indexing Show. Those are both also can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher. We have Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. I'm on Twitter at Pulp to Pixel. And you can email me at pulp to pixel at gmail.com. Yes, there's a lot of the word pulp to pixel. <laughs> <laughs> like everything. Um, I'm branding. I'm branding. This is what I'm working smart, on. Smart. Smart. It works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I'm always a fan of the shows. You guys have great conversations, you and your co-hosts, oh, when you do Secret yeah. Sagas. And mm-hmm. welcome to Astro City. When I first heard that, I was reminded how much I enjoyed that book. That was such a good book. You guys do yeah. a great job reviewing that. So one more time, well, thank you very much for being on Secret Origins Podcast. And I know I will have you back on the future. Thanks for having me on, and it was my pleasure to to come in and can't wait to come back again in the future. Don't go away, listeners, because I'll be back after this promo break with another secret origin, this time talking about Nort. Why? I just can't help myself. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle station. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You start lead officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's much sure to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on 2TrueFreaks.com.
Our last story this episode puts the spotlight on the Green Lantern who looks like a high school football mascot and has all of the charm and social grace of a high school football mascot. I'm speaking, of course, about Nort. A lot of people asked to cover the origin of Nort. For some reason, this was a popular entry. Sean Engel talked about Nort when he was on episode 7 covering the origin of Guy Gardner. Sean covered Nort on his own podcast, and I decided to put him on this story when I got to it. Sadly, Sean passed away last December. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you know who Sean was. You know how talented he was as a podcaster, but much more how beloved he was as a man and as a friend. We're still sad over his passing. We will continue to miss him, but we have to go on. Certainly the podcast does. So I was left with the unenviable task of choosing a replacement for this segment. As I said, the story was a popular one. Lots of people asked to cover this story, and any of them would have been great. They would have brought a knowledge and a joy for the character that I don't really have. But as I considered the list of potential guests, none of it felt right to me. But I also didn't want to do this segment alone, so instead I reached out to two of Sean's friends, his co-hosts on Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. As a tribute to Sean, please welcome his friends Paul Spitaro and Andy Leyland. Thank you for being on the show, guys. It's oh, all right. It's, it's, no, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I do like that you went through a list of people who could have been knowledgeable about this character and plump for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at some point you get tired of people who just, you know, oh, yeah, I love this character. I like this character. Give me some variety. You know, give me a character, uh, a guest who can give their completely brand new impressions. <laughs> well, you'll get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but the thought of. Being on here as a tribute to Sean or, you know, that's that's too much, too, too good of a thing to turn down. And although, you know, you said something about replacing, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we could we could step into his shoes for uh, a short time. Thank you for doing that. So you're not necessarily Nort experts, you would say. We're not Gnort experts, no. <laughs> well, it depends on how, how do you define expert, right? Does it mean we have to have read anything he was in? <laughs> That normally helps. <laughs> like if expert means we read this story, then I'm there. Okay, yeah, we know his origin, don't we, Pop? <laughs> that should be enough. Yeah, as, as a rule, we know his origin. We can pretty much make it up from the... <laughs> yeah, you probably can. You can guess where the character goes from here. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure exactly where they took him, but I can at least guess the tone of the stories. Actually, that's a fair enough segue into what his publication history was, so uh, let me get this for some of the listeners. Nord had only appeared in nine comics before this issue of Secret Origins came out. He debuted in Justice League International issue 10, which was part of the Millennium event. He next appeared a few months later in JLI number 14. From there, he became a regular member of the team, appearing in JLI and later in Justice League America. He appeared in a dozen or so issues of Green Lantern during the 90s run when Gerard Jones was on the book, including the story A Guy and His Nort from issues 9 through 12. He also had a backup story in the first five issues of Green Lantern Quarterly. Nort made occasional appearances in various books throughout the 90s, but by the time Kyle Rayner became Green Lantern, Nort had pretty much dropped out of view. More recently, he's popped up in the New 52 series Larflees and in some Convergence tie-ins. But that's all I got. The way I discovered Nort was through Justice League International. 
I didn't like the character. I just I didn't think he really worked. But based on Sean's recommendation, I read the story A Guy in His Nort from Green Lantern 9 through 12, and I grew to like the character a little bit more. I thought that story presented him well. Did that story present him as a serious character as opposed to the comedic version that we're seeing here? Because I'm just looking at the cover of Green Lantern 12, and it looks as if it was seriously presented. Jones gave Nort some redeeming value, some intrinsic kind of heroic qualities, he was still a comedic foil, but and I think the character is designed to be a comedic foil. He's designed to be a kind of stupid, slapsticky character. I think the problem for me with how he was used in Justice League International was that book was written like an adventure sitcom. All of the characters were already a little bit funny, more in a kind of sarcastic, snarky way, but sometimes in a too-stupid-for-the-moment kind of way. But then you throw in Nort, who's just the extreme. He's like a Jar Jar Binks-level stupid silly. And I just think it didn't work. And sometimes it felt like when Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis were writing him in Justice League International, it's whatever the situation was, whether it was a comic situation or a life-or-death situation, Nort existed solely to be the least helpful person in the room. And that could be through kind of bumbling clumsiness or that could just be through kind of just being like a snarky and kind of cynical, like a Facebook troll. Um, <laughs> from from this story, I, I would I would think that a lot of the comedy would come from laziness. Yeah, there's a, a lot of that was there too. This is my favorite story with the character written by his creators, Giffen and Demetrius. I kind of think he did better, he fared better when other people were writing him. Scott Lobdell, I think, wrote the backup strips in Justice League, or not Justice League, in Green Lantern Quarterly, and Gerard Jones, as I mentioned, was writing the uh, the guy in his Nort story in Green Lanterns 9 through 12. I, I think both of them got better mileage out of him, either as a solo act or as a foil to a straight man like Guy Gardner. Which is, which is a little surprising, because Keith Giffen is known for his comedic edge on, on his stories now. Uh, between the jail, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the Bwahaha Justice League, and even when he came over to Marvel and did uh, that five-issue Defenders miniseries. I mean, they were presented purely for comedy. Yeah, yeah I think it was, and it might be, maybe part of it was Giffen was plotting Justice League International, but Demetrius was scripting it, and maybe it was a fault of the dialogue. I really think part of it was just... Everybody in that book was already behaving sort of comedically and funny, and now you've got this guy who just has the wrong energy. It's like adding like a new cast member to a sitcom who comes from just a completely different style. Like, well, I, I could I could yeah. see where that could be the case. I could see where you know if you have a book that's basically comedic to begin with, mm. the comic relief really just kind of falls flat because you know you don't have the tension to play it against. Right. Okay, well, let me get into the story, and then we can talk about it. The Secret Origin of Nort is written by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis, with art by Stephen DeStefano, colors by Tom Zuko, and letters by Bob Lapham. Mark Wade edited the story, which is only eight pages long. Giffen and DeMatteis tease us, or tease Nort, I suppose, that they have a story about a legendary Green Lantern, known for his bravery and virtue. But this is not going to be this story. The creators tease us again by setting Nort's origin on a far distant planet where the last known Kozar, a giant insectoid alien millions of years old, reads a magazine and takes a crap on the ground. 
In the shadow of that massive turd, we find the dog-like species known as Puposapiens, and one particular Puposapien shouting to the world that he's just become a proud father. This is Nelson Niesmacher, both names spelled with a silent G. He and his wife Nancy, also with a G, have just given birth to little Nort Esplanid Niesmacher. Nort, we learn, is an insufferably loud and annoying baby. He cries so much that Nancy loses her temper and considers hurting him just to shut him up. Fast forward a couple years, and Nort is old enough to go to school, although he does get lost along the way for several weeks. When he does attend class, Nort proves to be a poor student and quite stupid. He only pays attention when the teacher tells the class stories of the famous Green Lantern from their world named Newman Noggs. And you probably guessed that both names have a silent G. Nort believes that Newman Noggs is a distant relative of his. So Nort grows up, at least in years. He's still a very stupid teenager who doesn't fit in with anybody or any situation. Bereft of any better ideas, Nort seeks out the guidance of the Green Lantern Newman Noggs, who turns out to live nearby and also turns out to be Nort's uncle. Newman spends years trying to coach Nort into becoming something close to a functioning adult. The dope they smoke together doesn't seem to help. When Nort turns 21 years old, with no prospects to speak of, a desperate Newman Noggs asks the Guardians of Oa to make his nephew a Green Lantern. They, of course, say no. But Newman filibusters until they relent, which is quite a feat considering the Guardians are immortal. Nort quits his pizza delivery job and joins the ranks of Green Lanterns. After his six-week training session, which takes him 14 years to successfully pass, Nort is given the power and assigned to protect an isolated and thoroughly uninhabited star sector. And that is, essentially, the secret origin of Nort. We'll start with Andy. What did you think of the story? Um, I actually quite liked it. I thought it was quite funny. I'm aware of the Giffen de Mateus Justice League era, because I've read them all, but I'm not. I wouldn't consider myself a massive fan of it just because of when I discovered it. I did not not like it. But this this was like a nice change of pace. It was an eight-page story that was jam-packed, mm-hmm. which in, in the modern era of comics is quite pleasant. Some of the jokes landed, some of them didn't. But it was it was pleasant read. It was fun. I can see why he probably doesn't fit terribly well in the new 52, because <laughs> he's, he's rather funny and throwaway. And, and I like that about him. I liked it. I like this eight pages. I like everything about it, particularly the colours and the lettering. <laughs> I don't know why they stuck out at me. I just thought, oh, this lettering's really nice. And then it's always, oh, it's, uh, it's Bob Lappin. Oh, that's why I like it. So it was great. I really enjoyed it. Paul, what did you think? Probably not quite as high on it as Andy is. Uh, I like the artwork. I like that it kind of looks like it's a cross between a Dr. Seuss story and an underground comic. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, if you're going to have a book that has a different tone from regular books, it's good to have artwork that's going to be a little different to set it aside as well, or set it apart, rather. Uh, you know, some of the jokes did fall flat. In particular, you know, you mentioned it in your synopsis where, where the mom is, is, wants to hurt him because he's crying too much. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not overly sensitive to such things, but, you know, as, as the father of a child that when, for, for the first two months of her life was, uh, well, so I'm drawing a blank on the word, but, but, you know, she was crying all the time for the first two months, uh, wouldn't sleep and, and just, you know, it was really, really difficult for, for the beginning. And then, you know, after that, there were no, nothing beyond that. But I know what it's like to have a baby that doesn't stop crying and how frustrating it can be. And the thought of, oh, let me throw it out the window is just not comedy. Yeah. You know? And I wonder if I wonder if maybe we're more sensitive to it now, like in the, when this came out in like 1988, 
If yeah. Oh, and the word I was looking for was colicky. Colicky. <laughs> I was going to say colic, and I thought, oh, maybe you call it something different. I'll stay quiet. That was the word that came to me, but not being a parent, I don't felt like that's maybe just the only word that I've heard of. No, that's that was that's the word. I mean, like I said, it's not that I had a handicapped child. I just had a child. I, th- I think, and I think the source of that is just that they're extremely gassy when they're young, you know, and they can't process whatever, and that's what makes them cry, and they don't sleep. But again, to you know, to to have spent a couple of months with a child who you would you know you adore to your new baby, and she won't stop crying, and it's frustrating, and you feel like you're not doing your job as a parent, and you know that that something's wrong. Like I said, that that humor just falls kind of flat. Mm-hmm. But, I but otherwise, doc- I, I found it entertaining. Yeah, I like the Doctor Seuss feel to it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was. I, quite I almost fun. feel like you should have done it in rhyme to make it yeah. more Doctor Seussy. Yeah, I guess that it, probably would have been harder work. Well, I, yeah, well, that's that's too bad for him. I definitely, <laughs> I definitely got a little bit of that vibe, uh, and part of it, I think, Andy's right. I think part of it is the lettering, and I mean the nature of the story and the art. There does seem to be that kind of feel. It reminded me. I actually had my notes of something like Doctor Seuss or like an old Rankin Bass claymation special. Mm-hmm. Like, like it feels like I, when I read this, I hear like Sebastian Cabot narrating the story, <laughs> and I'm trying to picture like Nort's voice as like a cross between Winnie the Pooh and Fry from Futurama. Like there's somewhere in there. But Sebastian Cabot, maybe Orson Bean. <laughs> yeah. And some of, sometimes some of the jokes reminded me of like Terry Pratchett or like that book Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, which is another one where they throw out a lot of jokes. Some of them land, some don't. I, I've I've always said that comedy is a combination of intelligence and visual stupidity, mm-hmm. and it's very hard in written words or in photos to truly express comedy in a narrative. It's very, very rare when I read, whether it's a comic or a prose novel or anything else, it's very rare that I read it. And even if I do find something amusing, that I will laugh out loud to it. And, and I could say, you know, this one in particular did, didn't get me to that point. But it, it's a rare thing. And every once in a while, I'll read a book that does that I actually laugh out loud. And that's when I know the comedy's really working. Mm-hmm. And this, this, you know, this was the comedy was okay. It was amusing. You know, I, I would smile or I would, you know, chuckle innardly. <laughs> but but there was never a laugh out loud moment in this one. Yeah, I like the the nine panel grid structure of it. I think that's what helped cram an awful lot into the eight pages. It does feel like a dense eight pages. Um, yeah, especially considering the first and the last page are are basically one panel splashes. I mean, you could almost say the story is only six pages. But yeah, the nine panel grid, which I'm guessing if I could take a look again, I'm sure that's probably yeah. Uh, Keith Giffen broke it down. He was the he did the breakdowns and the plot for the story too, and then De Stefano drew it. And right after, like in the post crisis era, that's what Keith Giffen was kind of known for artistically was the nine panel grid layout. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of other notes on the story. I, I do think, like I said, this is my favorite Nort story written by the creative team who actually created the character. And maybe it's because this is a solo story that plays to the strengths of the character and we're not seeing him bounce off of the more serious characters. I'd I'd be curious, Ryan, if you could give us a a brief synopsis of what uh, a guy in his Nord is, just because that seems to be the the definitive Nord story. It's guys 
sort of solo adventure. It's Guy having to prove himself that he can be a dependable Green Lantern and the best in his sector and that he's every bit the champion that Hal Jordan is. But he's basically handcuffed to the worst, stupidest Green Lantern he can possibly be handcuffed to. But through that, you actually see how great both of them can be. And even though, you know, at the beginning he's he just he wants Nort to piss off or he wants to like you know kind of get him out of his face. By the end of that story, you see how they work together, and Guy is willing to stand up for Nort. Guy is like tells you know the Guardians and tells the audience that hey. We'd all be dead if it weren't for this guy. He's a stand-up guy. So it is kind of a growth story for both characters. You see them at their best, even though it starts off like a buddy cop movie where they both hate each other. Mm -hmm. Like a 48 hours type of movie where they don't want to work together or a guy, especially in the Nick Nolte role, wants nothing to do with this guy. It's just a necessary evil. But Sounds the, like, like but 48 the end of it, hours, except yeah. instead of having uh, Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy, you have Nick Nolte and Professor Clouseau. <laughs> yeah, a lot more like that. I'm going to tell you something about this man. He's got more brains than you ever know. He's got more guts than any partner I ever had. It does sound like it's more suited to him being comic relief, because otherwise, if you eliminate him from it, it's a fairly straight story. It's not a comedy story with another comedy character in it. If listeners want to hear a much better synopsis than, than mine, go check out Sean's podcast, Just One of the Guys, episodes 9 through 12. He covered the story in, in depth. Any final thoughts on the story? I, like, I think, like, you know, as Andy said, I think, you know, it's an entertaining short story. I, I, it does make me interested enough to maybe follow up and read A Guy in His Nort, which, like I said, seems to be the seminal mm-hmm. tale with him in there. And on the other hand, I would question the ability to have a character like this in the normal DC universe and sustain the comedy. I would think after a while on a regular ongoing series, you, it could start to get a little repetitive uh, or, or a little... Uh, Childlike, and you know, you end up turning it into Richie Rich or uh, something along those lines. And I think that's why he didn't stay around for that long. He kind of burned bright for a couple of years, but by the time we got into the chromium age 90s, when there just wasn't a place for this type of character, uh, yeah, we covered uh, when the movie came out on Back to the Bends, we covered uh, you know, we did a Deadpool episode mm-hmm. and, and we covered in, uh, three different books by with him. And while I was, I was more familiar with him than I am with Nort, uh, I can't say I've read a lot of Deadpool, but I ended up having that same kind of feeling that yeah, this issue was amusing, but after a while, I would think over and over and over again with the same jokes, it would start to be a little. It would be a little difficult for them to to come up with new and different things to do, and it would start to be a little tiresome. Mm-hmm. However, they they seem to have milked an awful lot out of that character. So I guess maybe when handled right or when marketed right, uh, you can keep it ongoing going for quite some time. Good point. I just felt a little of him would probably go a long way. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly that's that's my uh, <laughs> that's a nice terse way to give my long winded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this eight pages was fun. I can't imagine an ongoing series being... It'd be like Ambush Book. Like a four-issue miniseries is probably funny, and maybe do that every year. But as a continuing character, uh, not so much. I think that's probably how I feel about him. Other places, like kind of recommended readings for listeners who really enjoy this character or do want to know more about him. He is in Justice League International. You can pick up that book. You can find some of the trades... A Guy in His Nort, probably the best story, I think. It's in Green Lantern, the 90s series, uh, issues 9 through 12. 
And then if you can find them, Green Lantern Quarterly issues one through five. Um, Paul, in honor of Back to the Bins, let's give the story a grade. Uh, we can't talk about the cover because we haven't talked about the cover. Um, but in terms right. of the story and art, how would you grade this one? Okay. Story-wise, I found it to be entertaining. As you guys have both pointed out, I did think it was fairly dense, all things considered. Uh, some of the humor works, some of it doesn't. And I think that's the thing that's ultimately going to keep it from having a very high grade is that some of the humor doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say story-wise, I would give it a B-. Uh, and art-wise, I really kind of like that Dr. Seuss look that it has here. And I think it really sets the tone for the story that we're getting. I think the, the art complements the writing style very well. So I'm going to say B-plus on the artwork. Okay. Andy? Uh, I'm going to go B-plus on the artwork as well because uh, I really do like it. I like that it's nice and clean, and it, it, it suits the story. It's The, the colouring's nice as well. Let's throw out the colouring. Story-wise, I'm exactly in said line with Paul. It was fun. It was a nice little eight-page reader. I, the, some of the jokes, that they rely too much on the gnu gag mm -hmm. and then correcting themselves in the narration. First time they do that, that's funny. Second and third time in an eight-page story, it's bit much so i'm probably going to go for a b plus for the story because i seem to just dig it a little bit more than paul but i agree with everything he said yeah i'm pretty close to you guys i would probably go down to a b like a flat b for the story but i'd go up to an a minus for the art so it probably all evens out at roughly the same yeah i think we all probably have like a b plus a minus range average there so yeah okay um moving on I did have Luke Giaconetti back on episode 26, which was after Sean passed away, and Luke said very nice things about his friend. I know you have both talked about Sean, but if you had any other words to say about your friend before we go, you know, I think the listeners would appreciate hearing from you. Andy, did you have anything else to say? I think it just says everything about the man that it took two of us to come in and step in where one of him would have done. And I, I don't know that we, we you know... Emotionally, we do justice to him because he, he's always with us. But uh, I'm sure he would have added a lot more to the episode as far as uh, knowledge and, and probably would have given some other stories that he would recommend that would be worthwhile. When, when we started doing Listen to the Prophets, I was really thrilled because Andy and Sean were two people who I considered friends, but I didn't get to talk to that often. So when we started doing the show together, it, it meant a lot to me to have a chance to kind of you know, to spend some time with those friends on, on a regular basis. And I think over the course of doing the show, we really did, uh, you know, we were already friends, but I think we, we became much, much more connected than we had been. So when we lost Sean, it was, it was a serious loss to us and, and we still feel it all the time. So anytime we can do anything that we can dedicate to him or, or be a tribute to him without being overly maudlin about it, I'm all for it. Just, uh, you know, it, it means a lot to me. So the fact that you invited us on here in honor of Sean, rather than go for people who are more knowledgeable, I, I really do appreciate that, Ryan. No, I'm happy to do it. Like I said, this, this felt right. I, I looked at the list of the guests, but I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to do something that I think would be a little bit more fitting, like you said, emotionally. Um, but anyway, thank you both for being on this episode of Secret Origins Podcast. Uh, Paul, where else can people find you online or in the podcast realm if they want to hear more from you? Okay, well, over the course of this show, we've mentioned both of my regular shows. I do Back to the Bins, which comes out weekly, and I do it with uh, Dr. Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner, in which we 
review random comics. So we have a lot of fun doing that. And then Andy and I do Listen to the Prophets, which is a biweekly show in which we dissect every episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And Andy? In addition to Listen to the Prophets with Paul, which is available on com, I do the Fantastic Cast with Steve Laser, which is ffcast.libson.com. Um, and Hey Kids Comics happens with my son Michael every time he's home from university. Too much for some people, apparently. And, um, <laughs> Not too much, just surprisingly <laughs> often, considering you told us you were done. <laughs> we were done weekly. Um, and I do Palace of Glitter and Delights, which is just my little vanity project, where I talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. Comics, films, books, TV shows, normally from the 70s or 80s, but not exclusively. And all of that's on twotrufeeks.com as well. And then just to throw in, uh, Andy and I have our other show that's going to be starting soon, and we're probably going to wrap it up not too long after that. Uh, but, we have, you know, there's only been a teaser episode that was on Palace of Glittering Delights so far. Is that the uh, the Keep Flying Firefly one? That's the one. I heard the teaser for that, and I was like, ah, oh, like a podcast maxi series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be 15 episodes total? Or? Yeah, yeah, that'll be it. That'll be fun. I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to that one. Well, as I said, thank you both very much for appearing on this episode of Secret Origins. It was wonderful to have you guys. Thanks a lot for having us. I really appreciate it. When I recorded with FKA Jason, there was something about Captain Adam that I wanted to bring up, but it slipped my mind during our conversation So, I guess I'll bring it up now. It's my own little soapbox thing. It may sound weird and trivial, but I have a pet peeve that is characters in comic books who are prematurely white or gray-haired. Unless the artist employs a photorealistic style, it almost never works. Even if the character isn't drawn with a lot of lines on his or her face and given softer features to make them look younger, I automatically assume the character is older. This comes up in the Captain Adam book because Nathaniel Adam has white hair in his civilian appearance. But the man, in Air Force uniform with white hair, I'm instantly going to assume he's an older officer. But they establish, not in the first issue but later on, that Nate is only like 29 years old. Even after the quantum time thing he experienced, he still looks like a 29-year-old. This actually causes some confusion and awkward sexual tension the first time he sees his fully grown daughter. But this scene is complicated unnecessarily by the fact that he doesn't look like a young man to the reader, at least not to me. He looks old because his hair is colored white, or not colored as the case may be. There seemed to be a lot of characters with unnatural white hair when I started reading comics in the 90s. So yes, a lot of the offenders were from Marvel and Image Comics. Quicksilver, the de-aged Magneto, Winter from Stormwatch, even female characters like Silver Sable or Zealot from Jim Lee's Wildcats, I felt like these women were supposed to be sexy and alluring, but to me they just looked old. Does that sound ageist, sexist, and just plain dumb? Sure, but I was a kid. I was the target demographic for this medium, and it misfired. Even Storm, when I first discovered her, seemed much older than she was supposed to be. It took me a while before I stopped seeing her that way. And when I did, well, now I think Storm is the sexiest woman in the Marvel Universe. But anyway, that is just something I was thinking about, something that bothers me about certain comic book characters, 
I wished Nathaniel Adams' hair was any other color but white. Except red. Oh, that would be... Ugh. Ew. Ew. Gross. Okay. Let's get to the listener feedback from episode 33, which featured the origins of Mr. Miracle, Oberon, as well as Green Flame and Ice Maiden. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Between the Pages blog, Captain Marvel 75, Comic Reflections, Daniel Budnick, David Gutierrez, Dr. Ange, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Dan, at Dinosaur Number 1, DC in the 80s, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Jim Bow, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Chord Industries, Lyrica Lily, Pietro Blaxamoff, I never get tired of reading that name, Richard Field, Rift, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sean Bamba, Sin, and Waiting for Doom Podcast. New Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Moss, Al Sedano, Bradley Null, Bruce Weaver, Carlos Pita, Chris Bailey, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Dale Russell, David Ace Gutierrez, Dale Dale, Derek William Crabb, The Five Earths Project, Fernando Roca, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Guillermo Rendon, Herman Liu, Igor Glushkin, The Irredeemable Shag, Jay Jones, James Murray, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Jose Rivera, Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, Kalel Kamandi, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Barrett, Kyle Benning, Marco Antonio Garcia Alguin, Max Romero, Nicholas Prom, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. One of the Facebook comments came from David A. Gutierrez, who said, Last episode was the best I've done yet. I'm sure that David's appearance on the Mr. Miracle segment has nothing to do with his assessment. Zeb Oswald said, I had the Mr. Miracle toy as a kid, had no idea who he was until I read Justice League International. Trevor Owen Williams said, Now that I've found my box of Secret Origins comics, I'm falling behind on your podcast as I'm trying to read the issues before I listen, praying that my OCD doesn't make me start reading at number one. I hear you, Trevor. Sometimes it's hard enough for me to read the issues before I record about them. Kyle Benning said, I don't have this issue, but I'm assuming 1988 Don Heck, as inked by Klaus Janssen, is probably not very pretty. The cover is the old bait-and-switch. Sean Walsh said of the Mr. Miracle story, It almost reads like the story existed more to tell Oberon's origin than Scott Freeze, but then marketed on the cover with Mr. Miracle instead because, well, then a short guy is falling off a building on the cover. <laughs> nice. Uh, Sean says, sad that this was the New Gods' one and only feature in Secret Origins. Yeah, I didn't even realize that. I, mean, I have a list of major characters who were not featured in this series, and it included Jack Kirby's 70s creations like Demon, Kamandi, and Omak, but I forgot about the other New Gods, like Orion and Light Ray and Metron. Uh, the Five Earths Project posted some information on Fire slash Green Flame slash Green Fury, particularly regarding the character's history and identity in the Super Friends comic before it was retconned by the post-Crisis Justice League. Some very interesting stuff there. Thanks for posting that. And Dale Dale said, I did not realize all of the great talent that went into making this issue. I really wish our Adam's style could have shined through more. 
I think we all wish that our Adams had just drawn the story himself. Or, no, our Adams should have drawn one of the other stories. Can you imagine his style on fire or ice? Okay, moving on to the website comments, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Rob Kelly from Pod Dylan and the Fire and Water Podcast said, I liked Klaus Janssen's inks over Don Heck's pencils, but I'll be damned if I can spot our Adams in there. I can't even look at Chuck Austin's artwork and not think of the porno stuff he did. I kept waiting for something really interesting to happen during the fire story, but it never quite got there. You guys, she sneezed green fire. What else do you need to happen? Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, As thrilled as I was to appear on the show, I was horrified that David A. Gutierrez is spending his time flagrantly not recording Ultraverse podcasts. I discovered those shows just in time for him to give up. I even wrote a very personal and touching email to his show, which will now never be shared. You got red in your ledger, Gutierrez. And Paul's friend Rift said, Another great episode. Your musical choice rant in light of the recently announced Doom Patrol book was pure gold. Kelly Clarkson doing Power Girl? Bwah ha 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 Diablo Frank from the DC Bloodlines podcast that covers the DC Annual's crossover event Bloodlines. Like, not ironically, that's what it is. Frank said, have to agree with Shag that the best days of the Secret Origins podcast are behind it. The JSA issue marked the premature climax of Roy Thomas's editorial regime and focus on revisiting Golden Age characters. The JLA issue marked the beginning of Mark Wade's regime and an emphasis on the Silver Age characters I'm far less interested in. At least Thomas made an effort to outreach through ties to current events, but after this three-issue visit with the mostly lame Justice League International heroes, Wade is all about wallowing in pure baby boomer, big chill, stand-by-me BS. The main thing I had to look forward to was the Martian Manhunter segment, which we recorded last month. So the rest of the run looks like the Wasteland podcast. My sympathies for Ryan on this project only deepened with time and all ape issues. Okay, Frank, if my downloads start to plummet after this episode, I'm holding you responsible. If the show doesn't find its audience, blame the critics, just like with Batman v Superman. Uh, Frank goes on, It's nifty that Miracle was based on Jim Steranko and that Big Bardo was Roz Kirby and Super Escape Artist isn't a bad angle. On the other hand, the visual takes a lot of getting used to, and Mr. Miracle seems very slight for someone with such a significant role in the Fourth World saga. New Gods is this huge story that boils down to Orion wanting to murder his father, and Darkseid wanting to mold the universe, and Kalabak never measuring up to his brother, and Light Ray fighting to keep Orion from succumbing to darkness, and Mr. Miracle pulls a David Blaine act at a circus? More than anything, my main problem with Mr. Miracle is that it feels like his entire story is in the origin. Sacrificed by Highfather, raised on Apocalypse, suffering under Granny Goodness, his light never extinguishing, and drawing in Barda, they escape the evil empire, and Scott Free chooses to forego major involvement in the eternal conflict in favor of domesticity on a backwater world. Nothing the character has done since has made a lasting impact. Even in the fourth world, where he's the son of Obi-Wan Kenobi and the captive disciple of Darth Vader, he only ever amounts to, I don't know, Wedge Antilles? Scott does some stuff and people know who he is, but he's no Chewbacca. Light Ray is Chewbacca. Now come on, people. Who didn't love that analogy? Jimmy McGlinchey said, The Mr. Miracle story that I liked the most didn't even feature Scott. 
It was the Justice League International run where Mr. Miracle had to do an intergalactic tour promoted by Magna Khan, and a replacement Mr. Miracle robot was put in place just as Despero came into town. The robot was killed by Despero by exploding the Justice League shuttle, and the issue that featured Miracle's funeral was a moving piece of work by Giffen, DeMatteis, and Hughes as the team came to grips with what they thought was Scott's demise. Fire Stories and Checkmate were good, but were a complete 180 degrees from how she was portrayed in the Secret Origin story. Under her revised history under Checkmate, she was a super-efficient, super-deadly spy with a right-wing father who killed a number of people as part of a dictatorship. Amanda Waller used this information to blackmail Fire to carry out covert assassinations without the knowledge of Checkmate. Cool info there. Uh, hopefully I will get a chance to read the full Checkmate series, you know, when I'm done with this show and then all of the other podcasts after this show. Martin Gray, my best friend from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, said, I've always gotten really bored by stories set on Apocalypse and New Genesis. The only Mr. Miracle stories I've liked were Earthset, with the Inglehart, Gerber, Rogers, Golden Run being my favorite. You know, some other people mentioned that run, too. I need to read that. Uh, on the last episode, Paul Hicks and I talked about how the Justice League International book in the New 52 tried to continue pre-Flashpoint relationships without being earned. Martin asked if we read it. Dan Jurgens worked really hard to make things work, Martin says. Aaron Lepresti's art is always worth a look, and it was pretty good. Uh, I did read the very first issue of that series, and it didn't hook me. Uh, I think I read the very last issue, too, because it was canceled early to make room for John's Justice League of America that was only set up for Trinity War and Forever Evil. So, I tried it. I didn't like it. Dr. Ainge from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, Like you all, I found the dual stories of Scott and Oberon a bit too clunky to make it seem necessary. I would have rather heard all about Scott... Maybe give Oberon a one- or two-page origin like Mazing Man or Mahunkle. There did seem to be huge gaps in the Scott story, things I knew as a fan that I thought should be there but weren't. My first encounter with Mr. Miracle was in the Inglehart Rogers redo in the late 70s. I somehow got the first issue, which dove right into the New Gods mythos. As a kid, I could see the art was crazy good, but the story made little sense as I didn't know who anyone was or why they were doing what they were doing. Now, I recommend those handful of issues highly. Like their work on Batman, the Englehart and Rogers' Mr. Miracle was brief and fantastic. Yeah, like I said, I'll need to find those issues. So. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I get Paul's comment on the color forms-like nature of this cover. Oddly enough, these covers are more kapow and superheroic than the JLI's Who's Who entry from the Update 88 that Rob and Shag just covered. I remember putting these issues in bags and hanging them up on my wall to make a mini-poster. I did that with a lot of images that spread over multiple covers. And then Chris says, Ryan, you just sent E. Nelson Bridwell spinning in his grave by saying Super Friends wasn't in continuity. He tried his damnedest to make sure it did fit into the Earth-1 tapestry, even if every other writer and editor completely ignored it. Jeff Nettleton said, Ryan, in your history of Mr. Miracle, you are too early for the DC implosion. That was in 1978. The Fourth World books were killed by Carmine Infantino, and the implosion was after Jeanette Kahn had taken over and replaced Carmine. The series were in revival when the implosion came about. Yeah, someone on Twitter mentioned that too. I don't know, I must have gotten my timelines messed up during my research. Uh, Jeff continues, 
You mentioned that physically, Barta was inspired by a Playboy layout of Lonnie Kazan, but her personality was based on Roz Kirby, Jack's wife. The banter between Scott Free and Barta was very much inspired by Jack and Roz. FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold podcast said, Your enthusiasm over the Green Flame story was refreshing. I remember being completely unimpressed with the entire issue. Time to dig mine out and give it another read. Hey, that's one of the goals of this show. And finally, a new commenter, I believe, Jason Pope, said, When I got to the Ice Maiden section, I was horrified to hear you use the Do You Want to Build a Snowman song from Frozen, and I shouted at my car stereo something to the effect of, What a terrible waste of an opportunity to play Cold as Ice by Foreigner. And then just as I finished speaking those words, the radio dial tuning transition happened, and Foreigner blasted through my speakers and I burst out laughing. Well met, good sir. I jumped on to listening to your Secret Origins show when you came onto the Fire and Water Network, and I've been enjoying listening to your reviews of the past issues. Also, really enjoying the Give Me Those Star Wars podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I hope the show continues to deliver, and I hope you continue enjoying it. That's all for this episode. Once more, I want to thank my guests, FKA Jason, Dr. G, Paul Spitaro, and Andy Leyland. I also want to thank everyone who left a comment on the website, Facebook, or Twitter. Thank you all for your likes and shares and retweets. Next episode, the conclusion of the Justice League International Trilogy, with stories of Booster Gold, Maxwell Lord, and the Martian Manhunter. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. And now I'm back to fool myself.